Unfortunately, that's the story of revenge. Revenge is okay. messy. It never works out the way you want it. Why the need for so much gruesome graphic violence? Why not let us imagine because a little Because it's so it? much fun, Chan. Get really? it? Oh, really? Okay, I'd like to see you walk down the street and get attacked by some kids who've just seen you. Oh, movie. but you saw me. See, Jan, you're all messed up okay. because you're talking about real life. Oh, and I'm I see. talking and kids about the 12. movies. You gotta kids get it straight. Now, if you want to talk about the movies, we'll talk about the movies. Okay, and kids at 12 about real life, can tell we'll the talk difference. About real life. Kids at 12 can tell the difference. You tell their parents that, Quentin. Hey, I, I saw you, movies sweetheart. when I was a kid, all right? I saw the all the movies that I'm basing yes, my movies on are the movies I saw as a kid. And yes, mm -hmm. kids go to a movie theater. They can tell the difference. Maybe mm -hmm. you couldn't when you were a kid, but I could. Okay, honey. Well, get in the hook. You're doing well, obviously. You're laughing all the way to the bank. And I know some people are I'm having a great time making a terrific movie that people are having fun seeing. Maybe not you, but you know what, Jan? I don't think I made it for you. What's up, everybody? I'm Nolan Tuck. Stacy Glover. And you're listening to Cinema Parlor. Stacy, how you doing? I'm good. How are you, dude? I'm doing well. So, on today's show, we are talking about Quentin Tarantino. And on top of that, we have our first guest. And this is big, uh, big news for us, because we've never had a guest before, so this is kind of nice. Uh, Nathan Jones. Hi, everybody. How you doing, man? Doing good. This is exciting. Uh, first and foremost, Nathan, what are you drinking today, man? Well, I, uh, was preparing for this a little bit, and so, aka, at the last minute I went to Brown Derby and got something that I thought would be, would be something special for the show, and I got, uh, Lily Koi. I'm gonna... Hey, we're gonna we, have... We butcher stuff we're all the time. We're gonna have so many butchering of names today. Excellent. Uh, Lily Koi, uh, Capolo. It is an Avery Brewing from Boulder, Colorado. It's a Belgian-style white ale... Uh, that has passion fruit and spices with it, and a 5.4 alcohol. Very nice. I've had that beer before. It's pretty tasty. How do you feel about it so far? I like it a lot. Honestly, it's a little dangerous. <laughs> nice. Those are the best kind of, kind of drinks right there. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you got there? Okay, I, so today I am drinking, um, they're supposed to be called Dark and Stormies, but I'm calling mine a Light and Stormy. Uh, this is a, a, a light rum <laughs> with uh, some ginger beer and a dash of lime. Did you know when you were picking up the rum that it was going to be a Light and Stormy? I mean. Or did you just pick up the rum based off price? Price. I mean, it was five. Like you didn't look at the coloring of the rum. I didn't. I mean, that was my fault to start with. First off, I went to the alcohol store, um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, just a general <laughs> alcohol, the alcohol store. store. I'm, Got um, beer. And uh, I left my phone at home, man. <laughs> and uh, I was like, you know, I had okay. So our, the other day, our friend was here. One of our friends was here, Barry, and he was making us dark and stormies, right? Uh -huh, right. And. Me just just be like um, that was good. I want that. So I didn't take the time to look up like what I actually need. I was just like, I want some rum, yeah. and I want some ginger beer. That's a dark and stormy, right? But now you got a light and stormy. So I have a light and stormy. I don't even know if that's a thing, but I'm making it's, it a well, thing it's today. It's a thing now. Yeah. <laughs> so it's very delicious, even though I messed up. It's still good. What are you drinking, man? <laughs> All right. So I too went to the beer store for Brown Derby, and. Um, they I choose these. not to give them a shout-out. How about that? We're, we're, 
We're gonna be sued. Yeah. <laughs> um, I got this uh, Brute Indian Pale Ale from Four Hands. Um, they had them on sale for like three bucks. Nice. Wow. Mm-hmm. So picked up eight of those, and they're delicious. Can't go wrong there, man. They're, they're probably close to expired, but you know, tastes the same. It still gets you drunk, so that's it'll make you see four hands. That's yeah, I mean. <laughs> exactly. Yes, uh, Nathan. Uh, so you're a guest. Tell us about yourself. Um, uh, what do you do, man? So I'm actually an academic advisor and full instructor at this university here in town. I'm in the communication department. I really love uh, my department. I did my undergrad and my graduate program there and have just kind of stayed over since because the faculty is just really great and I'm really happy to be a part of that. Yes. And then I have in the past actually how I met Tuck actually was I used to work at a record store in town and I really, really loved that place quite a bit. I actually have a lot of good friends from it and kind of that's how my connection with you sure. uh, kind of started about and... I just have a couple other jobs in town, uh, and but I'm actually going to China yes. for four months. That's exciting. Big news. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually, well, on behalf of the university, I'm teaching public speaking over there. So that'll be really fun. And yes. a really great experience for me. That's great, man. Well, excited to have you on today. And uh, we're going to have a fun time talking about uh, Quentin Tarantino. Yes. Um, before we do that, let's talk about what we've been up to. Um, so, Nathan, what have you been up to, man? Um, so besides working a lot sure. uh, and trying to prepare for all this stuff, uh, I've really not watched too much. I kind of slowed down once the Criterion sale from Barnes & Noble kind of ended, and so I haven't really watched too much. I was finishing up a lot of my Lone Wolf and Cub films, which was a lot of fun, and I had a lot of good times with that. Um, but in theaters, I've seen a couple things. Uh, most recently, I don't know if you've heard of this, I'm sure you have, but I watched Good Boys last night. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. How was, was it? Good? I actually laughed my ass off. I, I, Very nice. I had a good time. The trailers it, looked funny. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it, it looks like a super bad type of film, mm-hmm. just with preteens. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I needed to shut my brain off from the week I had, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. I just needed to laugh, and that's practically what that was, and I was I was happy to, to watch that and uh, just have a really good time. And actually, I got scared. All right. Um, in the movie? In the movie, which is, which is really <laughs> weird. Um, I was adjusting my uh, my seat at Alamo, and <laughs> I wasn't really, I was like kind of half paying attention for like a second, uh, adjusting myself, and then the one time there's a moment in the film that a character appears out of nowhere to like kind of scare another character, it literally got me, and I verbally like, Shouted out loud, like, oh! <laughs> That's great. So, All right. no one ever, and I had my friends laugh at me, and it was it was a very embarrassing time, but I loved it. That's great. That sounds good. What about you? Yes, okay, so uh, I've got a few things here I'm going to mention. Um, first off, I feel like I, I talk a lot about uh, things I've been watching recently, which I will do. I want to give a shout-out to a couple things um, other than film. Uh, so, I there's a book I've been reading um and this comes from Little White Lies, which is a publication from the UK. And they've been putting out uh, these little kind of pocket-sized book called, books called Close-Ups. And uh, they've come out with three so far. I read the first one on Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. And the second one I'm reading right now is uh, on New York movies. And so what this does is uh, it kind of takes all the boroughs in New York. Uh-huh. And it has a chapter kind of on, on each section. And so I'm really enjoying reading that. Um, I 
these are very like easy reading books. They're maybe 220 pages, but smaller pages. Um, they're kind of a breeze to get through and they've been quite enjoyable. Uh, this newest one I believe is by Mark Ash is his, uh, is the writer's name and I'm really liking it. So I, I would very highly suggest, uh, people look into those. I think they're very cheap on Amazon. They're like somewhere between eight and 12 bucks. Um, so yeah, that's, that's something I've been up to, so I, I would just want to give that a shout out. It's been very good. Close up. Yes, close up, and uh, from Little White Lies. So check those out. Thank mm. you. And then uh, another shout out I want to give real quick is music wise. There's a uh, song this week that came out by the band called Big Thief. They, they just put something out. They did. Yeah. So yeah. They, yes, their new single, uh, which they just put on a new album earlier this year, and uh, they've. It seems they have another album coming out in October called Two Hands. This is their first single called Not, and uh, all I have to say is it rocks, and I would highly recommend people checking it out. It's on iTunes right now. So Cool. Yeah. That, that's surprising to me that they put something out after, I knew their album came out recently. Sure, sure. Uh, UFO? Is yes. It? Yeah. Is that what it was called? Or? I, yeah, I believe that's right. I remember there was a song on there called yeah. UFO. Uh, so. Yes. It, very good album. I, I liked it anyway. Well, I'm excited to listen to it. So, yeah. Check that out. Yeah. Um, Movie-wise, real quick, um, I'm going to give a shout-out to a a movie I watched the other day called Masters of the Flying Guillotine. This is directed by Jimmy Wang Yu. This uh, is a Hong Kong film, an action film from the 70s, and uh, it knocked me off my socks. Uh, This, like, our last episode, if you keep up with us, um, actually it might be two episodes by, by the time this comes out, uh, we did a episode on Mortal Kombat, Enter the Dragon, and Enter the Dragon, and both those movies uh, have a you know kind of revolve around this tournament, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this world tournament. Sure, everyone's coming to this location. I guess I don't know if it's it's a a thing in these action films like in Hong Kung Kong Fu movies, Kung Fu movies yeah. to have like tournaments, but um, you know, Enter the Dragon was like one of the first ones I've personally had ever noticed where, you know, it revolves around this tournament. Well, Master of the Flying Guillotine revolves around this tournament. The whole, like, middle section of the film, maybe somewhere between seven to eight fights, uh, revolve around this tournament and actually taking people down to the death. And I, man, it, this just blew me away. It, it's a B-movie, I mean, but it's a movie that the action is so well done and it revolves revolves around a kung fu master um kind of hunting down another kung fu master and it's a sequel of sorts to a movie called the one-armed boxer one-armed boxer yeah um he also he did a very famous series called the one-armed swordsman yes and i think there's even and i think it's probably in the criterion box set but um he does a a film like a spinoff the one-armed boxer or one-armed swordsman versus Zatoichi. Oh, did he do that? Yeah, so oh, I, really? I think it's in okay. one of the later Zatoichi sequels. Very cool. Thank you for that because mm-hmm. that had not occurred to me, dude. Yeah, he, so. there's like five or six one-armed swordsman movies. Very cool. And then, yeah, this spinoff with the boxer. Dude, this was so cool and, you know, so basically real quick about the movie is like you have this kung fu master who is blind and the one-armed boxer has... He is the hero of the first movie, mm-hmm. and this blind kung fu master is the villain of this one, and he's he's after him from the first movie onto this one, and he has a chain connected to a yes a, a 
it's a flying guillotine mm-hmm. and he spins it around and it has a device on it that comes down on a person's head and as guillotines just, do yes exactly <laughs> thank you the purpose yes, of a guillotine the, the purpose of a guillotine <laughs> is to take the head off and that's what uh, this does <laughs> It doesn't lie, is basically what I'm saying. Yeah, so the movie delivers on its title. It does. Exactly what its title suggests is what the movie is. And uh, so, and the one-armed boxer has a flaw of his own, because he has one arm, right? Yeah. Who'd have thought? (laughs) The the way you built that up, I thought it was going to be something different than the only one arm. It's a little disarming when he says. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, So, if you like, um, you know... Kung Fu movies with uh, characters that have some sort of I'll say, when you told me about this movie, I was pumped and I added both movies on the oh, Amazon queue cool. because I've never heard of this. Um, you know, Kung Fu movies, we don't really... Probably until, like, the last, what, like, 10 years? Sure. We've gotten a bunch of them, yeah. you know, through streaming and Netflix mm-hmm. and, you know, old-school Netflix and such, but... Uh, but like Dragon Dynasty, you know, back in the day, if they weren't putting it out, like you yeah. didn't really get to, you know, right. learn about some of these old films. Yeah, that to me, that's what one of the cool things is right now in our our kind of the world we live in and streaming is Amazon Prime is now I will tell you that this <clears throat> version that I watched on there, not in the best shape, but just being able to watch it is a cool thing. So. That's that's awesome that we have we're able to actually see some of these movies and that we have access to them. So yeah, it's yeah. cool that there's a Zetoichi combo. I, I, have, <laughs> yeah. I, have, I have that box set and I have not explored it yet. Yeah, and so I mean I think it'd be a nice transition from that Lone Wolf and Cub. I watched, sure, man. We, we talked about Lady Snowblood a little bit. Right, right. And uh, our Criterion that's video a cool movie. Yeah. Uh, so yes, I'm looking into. I mean if. I mean, obviously, we're crossing over from Japan to Hong Kong, but like, right. if there's a crossover between two blind, yeah, like you know, a, a kung fu <laughs> and, a, and a swordsman, like that's fine with me. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Man, totally down. <laughs> All right, Stacy, what have you been up to, man? Well, I watched most recently Scream Blackula Scream from 1973, a sequel to Blackula. Very nice. Uh, directed by Bob Kelgen. Uh, he is famous for the Count Yorga films, so I have not actually seen these films. They're supposed to be landmark vampire movies from the 70s. Uh, I know, like, Gene, Gene C. Siskel, it loves them. Uh, they got a lot of praise, you know, when they came out. Uh, they were kind of different from what was coming out from, I think Hammer probably would have been the big, you know, vampire movie house at that time. Mm-hmm. But uh, I thought it was really well directed. It's got Pam Greer, Voodoo. And uh, this performance by William Marshall as Blackula is phenomenal. He's one of the ten best vampires I've ever seen in a movie. Now, he is uh, Blackula in all... Is he Blackula in the first film as well? Yeah, he, he's Blackula in the first film. And the first film is fine. It's just... It's shot by a, a guy who is probably more famous for doing TV shows okay. at that time. So it's got that TV movie look, kind of... If you've ever seen, like, you know, the Night Stalker movies... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the action's not very dynamic. There's, you know, nothing's filmed in a very dynamic way. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of generic. It's really his performance what carries the first film. But Scream Blackula Scream, man, like, the action pieces in it, I I think that, like, you know the shots in Lost Boys where the vampires are, like, lunging at people through the air? Yeah. And it looks awesome. Scream Blackula Scream does that. 
Okay. And he does it in a weird style where he'll play with lighting and stuff where it looks like it's like lightning going off behind one of them. And it's like very sudden and shocking. And like, you know, I don't find it scary, but I imagine at the time, you know, it was yeah. actually quite thrilling. And it's got this really fun set piece to end the film where they're just in this house of just vampires and the police show up and they just have a bunch of stakes and it's just policeman versus vampire <laughs> while Pam Grier is doing voodoo Sweet. to release Blackula's soul. That sounds great. Yeah, it's a really cool movie. Um, the soundtrack's awesome. It's got a very, like, tribal tribal feel mixed with, um, like, the Exorcist score. Okay. So I would recommend it. I was blown away. And I just think Blackula is, like, an average film. Okay. Scream, Blackula, Scream, quite good. And you guys have the... Uh, you have that on DVD, correct? <laughs> yeah, we, we've got the... The MGM, like, double feature DVD thing. I think uh, Shout Factory put out a Blu-ray double feature of them oh, nice. uh, about four or five years okay. ago. Very but, good. Yeah, it's definitely worth seeking out. And it, it makes me want to watch the Count Yorga films now, just seeing how well-directed this movie was. Sure. And I'm surprised that this guy didn't go on to do other stuff. Like, he he went and did TV after. Okay. But, yeah, it was pretty good. Very good. Um, I've also been catching up on David Lean stuff. Since we've got an episode coming up where we're going to cover Lawrence. So I've, I've been digging into the um, Noel Coward, David Lean box set from Criterion. Mm-hmm. Uh, this week I watched In Which We Serve, which is David Lean's first uh, film that he directed. Oh, wow. And it's the only film that Noel Coward directed. So they have a co-directing credit okay. on it. Cool. It's technically a propaganda film, but it... There's dramatics to it that you wouldn't see in your typical propaganda film. I don't know if you guys watched much, you know, from that time period, you know, from the war. I've watched a little. Like Frank Capra did a bunch for America. Yeah, sure, sure. I've seen some Frank Capra stuff. Yeah, Capra. Yeah, um, yeah there, there's a number of directors who went into, just stopped what they were doing yeah. here, went into the war, did work, uh, you know, for the government. So, yeah. Yeah, this film, it's... Uh, you know, the drama doesn't always hit, but, like, it's cool that there's a story that you can actually follow, because a lot of those films don't really have that. Uh, it does a good job with, you know... Hoorah-rah. Yeah, yeah. hoorah-rah. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's all about the love of the ship, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, the men that serve on it, and, and it's told in a non-linear fashion. Uh, it's, it's a very cool movie. The action scenes are very well done. I imagine that it was of some influence for Christopher Nolan on Dunkirk. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it does cover Dunkirk briefly, okay. you know, in the film, and the naval battles in it are quite fantastic, especially for cool. the time. Uh, I was very impressed with it. That's awesome. I, that's I need to check out that box set myself more. I the only movie I've seen from that set is Brief Encounter, which is fantastic. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm I like that you're going through that, man. I'm not there's a lot of yeah. those films I need to check out. Well, I've only seen like his epics, and since we're gonna cover one of his epics. You know, I want to go back and, like, see his, you mm-hmm. know, earlier stuff. So, you know, like, what built to that style? Sure. Yeah. And it's been a lot of fun. Very cool. That sounds great. Also, Castlevania 3 has been kicking my ass. Been playing some Castlevania 3. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's awful. I mean, it's a wonderful <laughs> game, but it makes me feel bad about myself. As games tend to do. Yeah. Luckily, I, I am not addicted to video games anymore as much as I used to be. I think Borderlands 2 was the last game I really actually played. Hey, man. You're still addicted to I'm it. I'm still addicted to Borderlands 2. I'm ready for Borderlands 3. Well, yeah, it's about to happen. So, <laughs> I, I mean, I occasionally play the Pokemon. Okay. I grew up with that stuff. Um, 
But very nice. You know, I I was gonna say um, Castlevania. Speaking of that, I, have you you've seen the Netflix show, right? Yes. You like it? I love it. <laughs> yeah, yes. I do too. I like. I it. haven't. Yeah. I need to watch it's it. It's really easy to digest. You could watch that in like a day. Yeah. It's easy. <clears throat> yeah, it's like four four episodes for each season, and I think second season's only six episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's super digestible. Very good. Before we move on, uh, real quick, I was going to ask you, you brought up the Wolf and Cub series. I just out of curiosity, I've, I've only ever seen the, the first movie mm-hmm. and also the... Americanized... Shogun Assassin. That's what I've seen. Um, yeah. Did you finish the set? I did finish the set. Tell yeah, me just your overall Shogun. thoughts of the whole the series as a whole. How, how did you feel about it? Because I'm interested in and um, just your take. So yeah, I uh, kind of went into this knowing very little about Lone Wolf mm-hmm. and Cub, and I, I was pleasantly surprised by the entire process of just watching it. I I really liked. I know we talked about this a little bit in our video. Uh, the over the top nature of some of these action films with where the blood would just, you know, oh, yeah. gush and scream right. and, I don't know, that that element of, like, kind of, as a kid, you know, like, that's kind of what I always thought of, just, like, these really cool action scenes mm-hmm. in, in films, and, like, you know, you'd, I'd watch, like, The Patriot or Gladiator, uh, yeah. you know, in 2000, 2001 or whatever, and be really uh, kind of enamored by mm-hmm. everything that's going on, but a lot of this, like, over-the-top nature of... of I guess, ecstasy of violence and battle came from a lot of these things, you know, yeah. in the sixties and seventies. Sure, sure. I thought this was a really cool, uh, kind of just take on a father and son relationship. Uh, there was a little bit less of uh, the dyna- dynamic I wanted. Probably. I wish there was a little bit more between the two of them. I feel like it was definitely more of, uh, the father, uh, you know, lone wolf. Uh, I can't remember his name. It's just escaping me as Ito. I think he was a Shogun assassin. Um, but yeah, no, it was just a really good time. I think there was some really interesting takes, uh, from the Japanese culture that I definitely was not aware of. Obviously the Japanese, uh, are a little bit stranger in the eyes of Americans. Mm -hmm. And so they have a little bit more creative liberty with a lot of the things that they are allowed to show. And I bet at that time period uh, in American cinema, is a little bit, uh, yeah, a little bit more, uh, not safe for work or taboo. Sure. Now, uh, Stacy, what have you seen from that series? Just Dude, I've only seen Shogun Assassin. Okay, okay. Um, which is a re-edited version of one and two. two. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll make I'll go ahead and make a uh, a statement right here, and uh, I think that's something. Maybe we should go over that box set someday down the line, and you should join us because that would be a fun go. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there's there's some really cool. Um, Battle sequences and uh, cinematography too in these in these films. Very I cool. I think it'd be really cool to talk about. All right. Uh, so with that note, I think that gives us a nice segue. Uh, are you guys ready to get into our main subject of the episode? Yeah, uh, Tarantino. Tarantino. Quentin. <laughs> QT. Um, so I think this this episode is. Uh, something I've been looking forward to, and it, it comes at a good time because uh, we've recently had the uh, the uh, release of Once Upon a Time in America, or Once Upon, America, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, <laughs> and uh, as I can't talk already, um, so I thought this Sorry would to be the Italians. yes, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Sergio Sergio Leone. Um, so I thought this would be a good time to kind of just talk about uh, the career of QT. 
and are also are also uh, I can't talk right now. Also, our thoughts on Once Upon a Time as well. So let's start things off. Um, just kind of our overall feelings of Quentin Tarantino and his work. Nathan, give us your overall thoughts on QT. Um, I am a fan of Quentin Tarantino. Um, I know there is that a group of people out there who probably who worship him without really knowing much about film in general. I know he happens to just be like a, a film nut and like he just watches a lot of the styles that he emulates a little bit later on in his films. I think that's just fantastic. And uh, he was definitely like kind of a gateway for me, at least into a lot of sure. the movies that I love now. Same. Yeah. And so that's kind of my overall feeling is I, I like him as a director. Um, I know he's got a lot of controversy attached to him too, um, but I accept that uh, yeah. because that's just who he is. Yeah. So, so I, I, I'm the same way. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I love his work. Um, I, he is one of my personal favorite American directors that is alive and working today. Um, I think it's an event every time he comes out with a movie. Uh, I think it's like something that I tell myself, like, you need to be there opening weekend because I want to see it, but I also want to be a part of the conversation, a part of the discourse. And I think it's just, it, it's big uh, every time he comes out of the movie. Uh, yeah, I, I love Quentin Tarantino. Um, like you said, there, there's so much to discuss about him without thinking about it in general. Like when I first saw one of his movies, like, you know, he, he's taught me a lot about how I think about movies and how um, movies kind of come to I've come I've come to watch movies I guess like it's a big part of, of my uh, upbringing yeah. so you know um, I he's a big part of my life and so yeah pretty great Stacy um, I share a lot of your guys' sentiments I would like to build on something that you said about him being an event director and I was thinking about this when you brought this up. He is. He, I mean, his films, you know, they, they gross pretty decent now. Um, yeah. You know, usually, you know, make a profit and stuff, but it, it's the conversation surrounding his films. It seems like it's always, you know, you see articles from all these publications every time he comes out with a new movie. There's always anticipation for his new movies. And I was thinking about back in the day, we had directors like this all the time, but mm -hmm. nowadays, he's. Few and far between. Yeah. I mean, right. outside of him, and not that I like all the films from him, but, like, who else is in that conversation? Christopher Nolan, Nolan James yeah. Cameron? Yeah. 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 Like, there's not that, a lot. That's about it, it right? on the American side. Yeah. yeah and, sure. I mean, we get pumped about... I know, think it's a big thing when Spielberg comes out with a movie. Move? Yeah. Like, it, he's more there, of a But it's, it's a very small... Yes. Small but group of people. I, see, in, like, Denis Villeneuve... I bet a lot of people don't know him yet. Still, yeah. And, mm -hmm. He doesn't have a name. Yeah. No, no one has, no one has Scorsese. a name. Scorsese. Exactly. And the, see, the thing I would say with Scorsese and Spielberg is I feel like they've kind of lost Had that. Because yeah. if you think about, like, Spielberg, like, I think after, like, Lost World, that kind of went away. Mm -hmm. You know, I love the sure. work that he was doing. You know, Munich's awesome, but you didn't get that conversation right. around that film. You didn't get that with Minority Report. And same with Scorsese, I like I love his work, but says the departed probably. Yeah, you you don't get sure. That. And to your point with with those guys, it, I think cinephiles in general 
get a lot more excited more than the general audience. Sure. And I mean, yeah, cinephiles, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, like the new James Mm -hmm. Gray and stuff, you know, we get excited about. But as far as like just the public conversation, everybody, even if they haven't seen the movie, probably has an opinion on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because it's in the news cycle. It is. Just to 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 go on your point here real quick, um, my parents who go to the movies, but they're not uh, cinephiles by any sure, means. Sure, they, they went and watched know. the new Tarantino. You know that um, it's something that it was it was for them. Like, hey, we should go watch this. Right. And we only do this a couple times a year. Why right. not go to a Tarantino yep. film? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's, sure. So I, yeah, I think it's yeah. remarkable that like he kind of has you know his. His part in that. Sure. And I don't think that's going to go away for him. Right. Um, like it has some of these other great directors. Absolutely. Those those are all uh, very good points. Could we just discuss kind of our relationship with uh, Quentin? Um, like kind of when we, when we first experienced him. Mm-hmm. Nathan. So the first time I experienced uh, Tarantino was... I definitely have heard of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction growing up, but I never really watched it. I never really understood any of that. But until I saw Kill Bill, Volume 1 and 2, and 03 and 04, okay. I never really had watched anything he's done. And I just I fell in love with it because, like kind of I alluded to earlier when I talked about Gladiator and Patriot, I liked these, these action films that were over the top mm-hmm. and uh, kind of censorious. And just a really, really fun time. And I was, at the time, I, without really getting into, like, my background, I, I've always heavily been into Japanese culture, mainly from a, an art teacher who came over here as a, as a student teacher from Japan during my elementary years. And okay. that's actually kind of where I fell in love with Japanese culture and, mm-hmm. and art and, you know. And so, obviously, I'm going to watch a samurai film. Sure. And, like, it's an American samurai film, and it happens you know, to have Lucy Liu in it who, right. um, was fantastic as O'Rin. And I, I just, I've never seen anything like it. I never, I've never seen something that's, you know, non-animated and animated and mm-hmm. uh, comic booky mm-hmm. and just the, all these different styles. And not until recently have I seen Lady Snowblood to where I see the, the connections with the first volume one. Sure. Absolutely. It's like a spaghetti Western mixed with this, you know, this Eastern thing. And I, I don't know, I was in love with that. That was my first ever experience with Tarantino. That's great, man. Very well said. I, as I think I've talked on the show before, I was not a cinephile growing up. It kind of maybe in my late teenage to early 20 years is when I really started getting into film. Um, around that time is when I saw Pulp Fiction for the first time. And it kind of changed my life. Uh, it was a movie that, unlike anything I'd ever seen before, and uh, it, it, I don't know what to say. Like, it, it's... Yes. I have an inquiry. Yes. So, <laughs> had, had you watched Pulp Fiction by the time, like, you got to high school? Like, before before we became friends, had you seen Pulp Fiction? I had not. Um, so, I, as um, people who know me, Obviously, the crowd out there who don't, um, I was very much uh, grew up in kind of a sheltered environment um, where, um, you know, I I didn't see uh, a lot of R-rated things as a kid. Um, So not until I was of age did I see R-rated films, really. Um, But um, so I I knew who Tarantino was. Um, uh, I have a distinct memory of like, you know, 
um, hanging out with with friends um, when we were in high school. I th- and, and I remember there. I'm we're a little older. I think we're thirty four. How old are you, Nathan? Twenty seven. Twenty seven. Um, I I remember in uh, like kind of early high school or or late middle school. I would go to like friends' houses for parties or whatever. I remember actually hearing things from Pulp Fiction, like their parents watching them in the mm-hmm. background or things like that. So I I knew of Tarantino's existence because he was a big deal, obviously in the mid nineties. Um, but uh, I I didn't see the movie until you know early, you know early two thousands is when I would have been first exposed to him, and uh, which is kind of crazy to myself now that I think about it that you've mentioned it. <laughs> um, but you know that's that's when I when I kind of experienced him, and it was um un- it, it was uh, life changing. I'll put it that way. Um, so. I think it's interesting. Your first experience with him is Kill Bill. Um, do you remember the buildup to Kill Bill? You. Yes, me. Um, because, so that was what, 2004? Three. Yes, three, 2003, three, somewhere three? there. I, if okay. I remember right. Um, so they show the trailer, and yeah. the big thing was the fourth film from Quentin Tarantino. Right. Mm-hmm. And... I just remember everyone was so excited because there was such a long break between Jackie Brown right. and yeah, that, Bill. Yeah, that was a big thing. And and like I said, um, I, it was probably around that, to be honest. That's why, that may have been why I watched Pulp Fiction first, is to get accumulated with that. that with that work that was coming out. And so um, I do remember that that was a big thing. I believe we were, we were working at the theater at the time. Right? Um, so I have a very distinct memory, and I don't know if you remember this. So we, I don't know what movie we were at, but they were showing trailers, and they showed the trailer for Kill Bill, mm-hmm. and then they showed the trailer for the Texas Chainsaw remake. Yes. And everybody was pumped on the Kill Bill trailer, and <laughs> me being a moron was like, <laughs> you put that Texas Chainsaw trailer, guys. <laughs> Do you Very remember nice. this? Uh, that, that sounds right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, of course, I mean, Kill Bill's a much better film. Sure, sure than that remake but uh yeah um so my first experience with kill bill i i grew up my family's very big into like the vhs stuff yeah so my first experience with him wasn't actually through his films but it was robert rodriguez films because his films are you know the type of stuff we'd seek out the genre stuff so his performances in desperado mm-hmm. and uh from dust till dawn is actually the first time i became aware of him and that led me to, like, seek out his movies on VHS. Okay. And I distinctly remember the VHS copy of Reservoir Dogs mm. at uh, Movie Mart. Mm-hmm. They had those hard plastic cases. Shout out just, to Lamar, Missouri. Yeah, where you pinch the sides and the VHS shoots yep. out. Yeah, and I remember it, those. And it's like you only had those two movies yep. of his that you could just rent over and over again. Yep. So you just learn them. And Jackie Brown was coming out, and I remember the Oscar push for that. Mm-hmm. So I would say, like, probably 95, 96. 97. Sure. Yeah, 97's Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown. Sure. So 90, well, 96 is when Dust Till Dawn came out, 95 right. Desperado. Mm-hmm. So probably 96, 97 is yeah. when I started watching that stuff. Yeah. No, that's great, man. <laughs> that's good. Uh, now, uh, real quick, uh, Nathan... Uh, as you said, you started with Kill Bill. Do you remember when you when you got around to watching Reservoir Dogs and, and Pulp Fiction? Would it have been uh, short after, or did, was it a little time? It was a little bit of time. Okay. Um, at the time, I was still into 
those action, those giant action sure. films. And so I know Batman Begins is shortly after that. Mm-hmm. And so I was definitely on the Christopher Nolan train and, and watching, you know, Fight Club and, and Seven and a lot of these other the adventure films. And sure, sure. Kind of those, those films that a lot of people have seen. Uh, I wouldn't say probably until Reservoir Dogs was probably around 2007, eight. Okay. Nine, something like that, and it was around freshman year of high school. Okay. And um, honestly, I'll talk about Reservoir Dogs a little bit later. Sure, but sure. I will say that Reservoir Dogs definitely uh, it left a, me. Left a mark on you. Yeah. Yeah. Which which it did for me as well. I mean, after I watched, like I said, you know, Pulp Fiction, I would have saw that two thousand three, two thousand. Somewhere you had there. to have seen it before um, we were making videos together because, right? Like we would reference that. Maybe it's two thousand two, somewhere in that, yeah. in that area. And uh, but I, I saw after I see after I watched Pulp Fiction. I mean, I'm the type of person which which you know, Stacy. When I get into a director, I get into him. So like, I want to see what they've done. And so I went to Reservoir Dogs. It blew me away. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know why I started with Pulp Fiction. Obviously, it's probably the most famous, most famous so, movie, yeah, but that's what I started famous, with, yeah. and I kind of went down then back up. So, either way, uh, yeah, great stuff. Great stuff, everyone. Great job. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on. Um, this kind of leads us into discussion. Uh, if you guys are all right, let's go ahead and talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. I'll be all right with that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Nathan, start us off. Uh what were your initial thoughts on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and kind of how it fits in with Tarantino's canon? I don't think I was as excited uh, as I was for Hateful Eight, mm. um, personally, because, I, I mean, I'll get to Hateful Eight uh, a little bit later. It's one of my favorite ones of his, actually. Cool. Um, but I, I was like, yeah, it's a Tarantino film. It's going to be really great. Um, and I, I know it's going to be good. And so I watched it for the first time, and I was a little hesitant as I was watching it a little bit halfway through, near the middle part of it, I was like, this is just a fine film. Like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of really great shots, a lot of really, some really great acting in this film. Obviously, we got a really great talent in here with Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, among a million other people who would sure. do cameos in it. But um, I wouldn't say until after the fact, like, after the whole experience, obviously there was, uh, you know, a really great ending. Um, but I wouldn't say until maybe after the fact that I've seen in that discussion that you were talking about earlier, every time you're in that first week discussion with people, it sticks with you. And to Mm -hmm. me, I feel like it only proliferated from there. And so I was initially like, this is a a good movie, right? It's a good movie. And then I would say my afterthoughts, I've only seen it once, but my afterthoughts have increased my interest in the film. And yeah. I would say that um, there's a lot more questions going in. There's a lot more um, interest in seeing what I missed okay. next time I see sure, it. Sure, sure. So I'm, I'm interested in watching it again. Okay. So a lot more. Would now. you say you overall liked it? Yeah, I really liked it. Very good. Uh, I'll go ahead and say that uh, I watched this movie opening weekend, and it blew me away. Um, we talked a little a um, couple episodes ago of just our initial thoughts on the film. Um, I went and watched this, I believe it was last weekend or for a second time. And it kind of cemented in my mind that I, I think this is a masterpiece from Tarantino. Um, uh, I just, man, I'll say it this way. Um, I listen to a lot of like film podcasts in general. Um, 
I've over the last couple weeks, I've listened to six or seven different podcasts um, and their opinions on the film, and everybody has something different to say about the movie. I think that's, that's a good sign. A, a very good sign yeah. of th- there's there's so much to to think about and discuss about this film, and that's something that really gets me excited. Uh, it's it's a movie that has a lot to do with um, old Hollywood um, going into the new Hollywood. It's a movie that uh, I find uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt are both at the top of their game. I think uh, Margot Robbie, while um, I've heard people quote-unquote complain about her, um, I think her performance is unbelievably good in a role that she is doing exactly what's needed of her on the screen. Um, I think that um, she is... Uh, the heart of the movie, almost like an angelic um, performance that is looking over the film. Um, I just I find this uh, movie one of his uh, most uh, heartfelt and genuine um, films that he's made to date. And uh, I I can't gush as uh, I can gush more, but I'm, I'm going to stop there. I, I, I really have a love for this film. Yeah, I'll just stop there. I'm assuming we don't want to get into too much because it's a new movie and spoilers and stuff. Not that this will be a spoiler, but speaking on to what you were saying, Margot Robbie, as Sharon Tate, watching herself in that movie is one of the best scenes I've seen in a long time. Like, just her enjoyment of just enamored with herself that... And it's so innocent... I think that what's so great about the movie is how it romanticizes this idea of what could have been. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think you both bring a good point of, especially talk, you talking about this is kind of the innocent. Uh, Margot Robbie's character is the innocent. Like It's kind of like just us watching a, a, you know, a film where we know it's a Tarantino film and we know there's something that's going to happen. But, you know, you have somebody who is completely oblivious and, and kind of just enjoying their life. And, you yeah. know, and, and it's honestly a really fresh life to them, too, because obviously mm-hmm. she died so young. Right. And so you're you're seeing this side of her where, you know, we're still in that stage of our lives now, probably a little bit. Yeah. It's, it's a very touching moment um, because, you know, I, I think personally, I think about that scene and like... Um, if I was if I was to to be an actor in life and I, I see know that I'm going to be on screen like mm-hmm. and I'm I'm not someone who's like super famous like the way she was about that scene asking for a ticket and yeah the build yeah, to the it the build to it asking like hey perfect. I'm in this movie and and the way she goes about it is yeah. not like a mean spirited she's just like is there any way I could get into this movie right. to watch this film mm-hmm. it's like yeah. I felt that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's very heartfelt. Um, So this movie is, it's one of two of his films that hits me emotionally. His films aren't really high on emotional content. Sure. Um, it's more style, but, um, and you know me, I am a sucker for, if a movie can make me feel anything mm-hmm. like that's, cause that's the purpose of the films. Like, you watch movies to feel a thing. And the fact that like, I don't want to spoil it, but in credits, when that 
came up, that titler. Yeah. Like, I almost teared up. Like, it was just so impactful. This uh, vision of kind of this perfect fairy tale. And vision of hope, too. Yeah. And I think that's another thing that I liked about Mar- Sharon Tate's character is you have this, this hopeful person who has just made it to where she was. Sure. You know, and she was just starting out. Yeah, but, it, yeah. go ahead. Um, well, it's talking about my experience watching the movie, um, my experience was very similar to yours, Nathan. Um, I... I wasn't high on the film while watching it. I was like, well, this seems like one of his lesser films. You know, it, this isn't getting me excited. But then afterwards, and then people would ask me at work and just out and about friends in conversation. And it's like, I have a lot to say about this film. Maybe there's more there. Like, there, there's so much text in the film to go over. Sure, sure. And it, it's wonderful, and I... I could probably spend the whole podcast talking about the movie and my love of the movie. Mm-hmm. And we just don't want to get into spoilers and stuff. Yeah. Um, I'll just say real quick. Um, I guess. Unlo- similar to you guys, but unlike a little bit, like I, I found myself to be in love with the movie while watching it. Um, so I, 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 I was, I was completely enamored while watching it the first time. Also, I would like to say at the end of the movie, while I agree with both of you about this, it, it, it is a fairy tale. Um, we won't say other anything other than that. I think the titler itself um, can tell you enough right, right there. Well, and the two lead characters are fictional and the, characters. And the two yeah. characters are fictional. Um, it, it does a very good job of, of having, um, uh, based on real events, mixed with fictional characters, based from characters from real life. But I will say at the end of the film, while there is a a strong sense of hope, um, for me, it was also a a very much strong sense of melancholia uh, mixed in, not only with with the way he kind of shoots it overhead with the shadows lingering, also the music that's playing is kind of this um, very much a, uh, a feeling of being unsure of the future. Um, and again, we, we're not going to spoil anything here, uh, because I think we could have a pretty good discussion on that ending because of, there's so many different ways you can think about that ending, in my opinion, and none of them are wrong. Um, but I, 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 I just love, I love the way the movie ended and the, the thoughts that, that, um, that came from that ending. And, um, it's just, it's a brilliant film in my opinion. I love the way that he kind of goes after Hollywood mythology in the movie. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, and so many, like, he goes after real-life characters, as we know, with, like, the new cycle of the Bruce Lee story that's, like, developed over right. the last couple weeks. But um, also using his fictional characters to take stories and put them on there. You know, with, like, Brad Pitt. Um, Cliff Booth. Yeah, yeah. Being, mm-hmm. being settled with this, like, Robert Wagner-type backstory. Yeah. You know, I I just thought it was fantastic. Yeah, there, there there's definitely a sense of myth- mythology on there. There's there's also a th- I I think anyway there's a a sense of uh uh these male fantasy I would like to say in some in some way of of in the character of Brad Pitt um and and composed to um how we think of actors 
uh, I think there's a, there's a lot to digest in, in, in Pitt's and DiCaprio's performances. I think a big part of the movie, that middle section where we see all three characters um, with Margot Robbie's character and Sharon Tate being at the movie, uh, we have uh, Cliff Booth, as in uh, DiCaprio's character, um, going through um, that kind of middle section with uh, the uh, the ranch. And then also... Uh, Brad Pitt, I'm sorry. And then DiCaprio's character as um, uh, Dalton uh, uh, being on the set of the of the TV show. And I think all these it, it, what's interesting is, is all these as these three characters intertwine. Um, it's almost a as if uh, Cliff Booth is living out the reality of what um, Dalton is um, acting in his television show. I'm probably not right. making a lot of sense here. No, I, but, I get it. But, but if, yeah. I think there is a lot to go by. And I also think it's interesting that um, Booth, you know, played by Brad Pitt, I love his character so much in this movie, but, like, he may not be, like, a genuine great person, but, like, also we're cheering for him by the final scene. I think there's a lot to think about and a lot to chew on in this film in well, general. I, he obviously has... Like, an infatuation with, like, this old-time Hollywood... Right. Like, TV journeyman. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have Stuntman Mike from Death right. Proof, you know, who... You know, Stuntman who worked on these shows that, you know, they don't need him anymore. Yeah. No longer in production yeah. and stuff. And, you know, he sprinkles references into, you know, old Hollywood and old TV through all of his movies. Did... I don't know, like, what your television consumption was as a child, like, syndicated TV, but... I watched a lot of uh, Bonanza. Did you guys get, like, like, the feeling that he was laying down in this movie? Was it stuff that, like, you recognized through watching syndicated TV with, like, your parents or grandparents or anything? Like, was that relatable? Absolutely. I I felt when, um, you know especially when when kind of Pacino early on in the film yeah. kind of talks about what his role is being diminished to. Because right? you're this character actor that goes through yep. these shows like you're the bad guy. And, yeah. Like, you, you know, know, I, and I love the, you know, like Batman, you're going boom, pop. Yeah. Yeah. His, you know, he, he he's letting Rick Dalton know that, you know, you're getting this persona of playing the heavy. Yeah. Right? yeah. And so the more you do this, the more this is the role you're going to be cast into right nathan what is your experiences with all the stuff that being referenced like the the television syndicated tv so did I you w- have any i would say i'm a little alien to it like the whole notion i i watched a little bit i i mostly watched 90s sitcoms hmm. like with my parents growing up and i definitely watched a little bit of like Andy griffith and and some of that and i definitely uh, know that i, I think with a sense of what we've been talking about, I could get a sense that we have certain characters going from show to show playing a specific role. And that specific role is how the, the public perceives that, that character or that just that person in general to be like, oh yeah, clearly this person's the villain. And mm-hmm. they've always mm-hmm. been a villain in everything they've ever been in. And so that's, and then that, that plays with, you know, Brad Pitt's character as a stuntman. And also, I mean, obviously specifically with Leo, like, he, he he obviously wants to break the mold with what he's doing, and he wants to, you know, like, mm-hmm. kind of get out of that. And I think, like you were saying earlier, Nolan, uh, there's that 
um, that real life aspect of Brad Pitt's character feeling the actual thing, or actually going through the act, the thing that uh, Leo's thinking. Sure, of, sure. And like you're actually seeing him kind of fall behind and kind of just you know falling back on that. I sure, that's a really good point. Very good stuff. Yes. Um, yes. How, how do we feel about the controversies? Well, you know, it's okay. So first off, I want to. As we've already talked about a little bit uh, with the Margot Robbie stuff, um, obviously, I, in my opinion, she's brilliant in this movie. I, I've heard, you know, I, when after it came out in Cannes, um, we heard uh, some people complain about her lack of dialogue. I'm of the opinion that I don't give a care um, because good performance is she a good performance. is magnificent right. in this. Story shouldn't be sacrificed for no. uh, an agenda. Agreements. Yeah. Okay. Um, as far as the Bruce Lee stuff goes, I personally didn't have an issue with it, but at the same time, I can understand the family's point of view. But overall, um, it's you know this this is a fictionalized film, um, and I think QT has the right as any um, director. To do whatever he would like with the script. Do you think that a lot of the angry internet boys, that maybe the only exposure to Bruce Lee they've had is Enter the Dragon and that Jason Scott Lee <laughs> um, dragon movie from 90s? I would say you're probably right. <laughs> Nathan, your thoughts? Um, I'm actually one of those people who have has like hardly any knowledge of Bruce Lee. Okay. I have watched Enter the Dragon and uh, seen a, a few probably with my dad in my past, okay. but I, I really don't know much about the controversy actually. I don't actually know what we're talking about. There's like a back and forth going on, and it's actually in like major news cycle, which is very silly. Um, but we're talking you know, about someone who's been dead, been dead for a long, long time. Right, and who would not care. Right. Um, but... Basically, there's a back and forth between Tarantino and Bruce Lee's daughter, who was not alive during, like, or was not of an age to understand anything from when her father was. But, you know, I if somebody was making, like, a joke out of my parents, I would be... Sure. She has... She I, has I, I, sure. I, I realize I just poo-pooed, you know, no. that, and that's insensitive of me. But it, it's... I, I think that you can tell that Tarantino does have a reverence towards Bruce Lee, but the whole film, it, it is about breaking these mythologies right. about sure. Hollywood, and Bruce Lee is one of the most mythological characters oh, to come out of Hollywood. Because He's all I know about so him is romanticized. Exactly that. Yeah. And, like, I mean, they even kind of make a clown of, like, Steve McQueen in the movie, and nobody yeah. mentions that. Right. right. And... And, you know, with with the Brad Pitt, Robert Wagner stuff. And I, I I think, you know, Bruce Lee being, like, such an important figure for Asian Americans. And, you know, I do get that. But also it is a film. And I just think some of the controversies that surround Tarantino are a little silly. And people just... I, I find it really silly that people kind of put on him that he doesn't have the right to tell these stories. And he got that a lot earlier in his career. Sure. You know, yeah. like with the heavy use of the N-word and right. you know, things like that. Um there's a fantastical element about his things that we're we've been talking about a little bit too. Yeah. Which I think a lot of people obviously as people like us, we've we are we're really into film. And so 
obviously we get that fantastical element, but you know, I feel like you know that controversy has been a you know a thing about Tarantino his entire career mm-hmm. practically with a senseless violence since Reservoir Dogs, right? We get all the way to you know sure. now, and there's always literally always something about each one of his films that yeah. somebody doesn't like. Yeah. It, it would not be a Tarantino film without um, some type of discourse or discussion. Yeah. So, yes, th- those are those are all fantastic points. Um, b- before we move on, uh, real quick, um, I, I just kind of want to get um, you guys, like, without spoiling anything... Um, did you have a, a favorite moment in the film, Nathan? Oh, on the spot. Um, <laughs> I, I'm going off script here. I'm yeah, sorry. Sure. Um, I would say one of my favorite moments of the film that I can think of at the moment is not really getting into anything, but uh, Brad Pitt visits a lot, um, kind of a, a real live uh, living situation for um, the Manson family. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a, an incredible scene. So yes, when when he goes to Spawn Ranch, yeah. um, there was man. It's a part of that that section I was talking about earlier, and I'd say it. It's a good what probably ten minute sequence somewhere in that 15, maybe 15, 20 minutes. Sure, yeah. It's to, and it's to it, me the place that like starts me interested again. It, it's one film. of those those scenes like, what's going on? that we yeah. will talk about later. One of those suspense-building scenes of Tarantino. And what's interesting about the scene is you know that that is a fictional character, so there's nothing sacred about him. And you know the Manson family. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, the way he builds tension, I think that that sequence is the best filmmaking. Mm -hmm. I mean, outside of the Margot Robbie watching herself, like, that is just absolutely beautiful. But... Like, that is the best filmmaking on display in the film. Like, his ability to create tension based on our preconceived notions of mm-hmm. what's going on. Yeah. Uh, great choice. Um, real quick, I'll go with um, just the... Uh, I'll just put it this way. The trailer freakout scene from Leonardo DiCaprio's <laughs> character. Um, that was great. This... Oh, man. <laughs> um yeah, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. You could have stopped at four whiskey sours. Why'd you have to have eight? Why'd you have to have eight? Wasn't I'm, it all ad lib too? For uh, from part? from what well, I, I don't know, from, that's awesome. I believe if it is. I believe that is correct. Um, Following in the steps of a Jeff Goldblum. You know, it, it, <laughs> it reminds me. So there's a little differences because um, obviously the emotional weight is not connected, but I think there's a tie-in between that scene and. Um, from last year's Mandy with Nicolas Cage losing it in the bathroom. Now, I will say, obviously, the emotional weight is completely different. But I felt, just that this is just my opinion, um, I f- like as, as the scene starts with Leo in the trailer, I started laughing. And as the scene carries on, like towards the end of it, I personally, I felt a bit of sorrow um, come into my into my uh, brain because I'm like I'm laughing at this man and it is funny but at the same time you know it, it it's kind of a bummer that what he's kind of going through because in the movie he is an alcoholic and he's having issues and he he's trying to um, kind of understand the career path that he 
is going on. And so I know it's a funny scene, but I, I, I found it looking back on it. I find it a, a bit um, saddening at the same time. I, I mean, <laughs> obviously not on the level or, um, you know, as far as that goes. But uh, doing the acting thing, asking for a line, it's one of the worst sure. feelings. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, yes, I understand. One of the worst feelings. Right. Um, I've never had a freak out like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um man, yeah, for me, I mean that ending is banger. Sure. Sure. It's Yeah. It, it delivers and I I think the reason it works so well is because of how the um the cliff on the ranch works so well is you have this preconceived notion of what happens. Right. You know history, you know what happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there you go. Yeah. 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 We don't want to say anything. Yeah. It, it, it's it's excellent. Yeah. Wonderfully done. All right. Uh, any final thoughts from anyone before we move on? Um, I, in my opinion, I, again, I've, I've already stated, I think this movie is a masterpiece after watching it twice. Um, that is my opinion. I was say, go, yeah, go watch the movie if you haven't seen it. Oh, Absolutely. yeah, for sure. Absolutely. One of the better movies that has come out this year. All right. Um, So this next part of the episode, uh, we're going to run down some categories here. Um, Some some Quentin Tarantino categories, if I could talk right. Um, So the first one I've got down here, uh, we've got our favorite Tarantino character. Are you guys ready for this? Absolutely. All right. Got to pick one. (laughs) We, we only one. I know there is many. Um, okay. If you want you to, you cheat all the time. I, I do cheat all the time. Okay, we I'll make lists, and I might cheat a little. Yeah, bit. no kidding. We'll we'll do like a top ten list, and sure. he will come with twenty movies that he talks about. So I will go ahead and say I am going to cheat when we get to our top three Tarantino films. Okay. I, what the hell? <laughs> you were the one who made the notes and the structure. It better be something like Kill Bill Volume One and Two. <laughs> right. That's the way you cheat. Right. My lips are sealed. My lips are sealed. <laughs> All right, Nathan, uh, start us off, man. And you can cheat. They are allowed. Um, your favorite Tarantino <laughs> character. Okay, so character. Uh, I wrote down three. I guess. Uh, let it here. Let yeah, let's talk, talk about them because I bet we're all gonna have different answers. Let them have it, man. So the most recent thing, and it just goes back to what we were talking about just before the break. Um, Cliff Booth. For, from Brad uh, Brad Pitt's character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, has definitely been one of my favorite recent Tarantino characters. Obviously, you have that ideal um, masculine character who you know is demasculine. He's 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 taken from where he what he used to be, mm-hmm. uh, and he's really feeling that throughout the entire film. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, we're he's not a great guy, but you're you're there to root for him for a lot of the stuff that he does and you don't know if he's, you know, the person that he says he is. And it's great. Definitely. It, his character, I think, first off, I, I love his character. Very nice pick. I think it's someone that there's a lot going on in that character because you are right. Like, as we talked about earlier, like, he's someone you find yourself cheering for in the film. He's also someone that we don't know for sure, but he possibly has killed his wife. Mm-hmm. It's also someone um, who 
later on does some pretty incredibly violent things. Um, we'll just leave it at that. Um, but he's also someone that like you learn to love in the film. They, I mean, they do a good job with the dog. I mean, anybody right. with the dog, sure, and it, it always helps, right? Yeah, it it, it definitely puts Humanizes you on his side, and it always yeah. helps when you have Brad Pitt because he's charismatic. Yeah, this character, and, you know, he's extreme machismo in this film, and right, yeah, it's very appealing. No, great choice, man. What what else did you have? Just out of curiosity, um, I had Oren. Uh, from Kill, Kill Bill. Bill, yes. Like, I know we talked about her earlier, but uh, I just recall from that uh, that scene, that board meeting scene. Oh, from that. Yes. That first time I really were was introduced to Oren uh, Ishii. Is that mm-hmm. Yeah. Name? Half American, half Chinese, mm-hmm. half, half Japanese. Japanese. Yes. Half, 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 right? <laughs> um, yeah. You know that scene was super memorable, and very much. It's. Uh, actually, I mean, I haven't talked about it, but the uh, Kill Bill soundtrack on Volume One it has some excerpts from, um, just the dialogue of the film. And yeah. That's one of the excerpts from the, the thing, and I I remember that almost line for line the entire uh, just scene. Yes. And it's just it's just fantastic, and I I thought she um, plays a really great villain who you know is just somebody who's also trying to find an identity within this organization with a really terrible background uh, and just trying right. to find her way and to make sure that she's solidified um, from where she came from. Yeah, you know, like, go ahead. Well, I might not be remembering this correctly, but it, it's been several years since I've watched the films, sadly. Um, she's the only person on the list that's given an extensive backstory, isn't she? As far like she gets her own chapter in part one, she the animated seg- yes, uh, segment. That's right. And then building everything to her being, you know, the lead of this gang yeah. and them not respecting her and all that stuff. Absolutely. And what I was going to following up on that, she's a character in that film that like, yes, yeah, she I think a lot of people forget she's a villain, but she's also someone that as watching the film, you have somewhat of a, a sympathetic attitude towards um, because of her upbringing, as we see in the animated section. And while we come to realize that she has done the bride wrong, um, we also have a sympathy for her character because of what she went through as a child growing up into an adult. Well, I mean, it, you could say they're all bad people. It's just perspective and circumstance, right? Sure. On sure. why we root for the bride, right? Yeah, even her has she's got to check her past too herself, and mm-hmm. like you know, like mm-hmm. we're saying, mm-hmm. circumstance that definitely dictates how we feel about all of these characters. Yes. And your third pick, what you have? Third pick was Mr. Pink from Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> Very nice. Um, I mean, he's the first person to talk about in that movie because he's the first person who brings up something that's pretty big deal, right? Yeah, tipping. Yeah, that scene. An unbelievable opening scene. You know, <laughs> that is like, what what a way to start off a a career, right? That din- that diner scene oh, with Tarantino. That's definitely the... the <laughs> we have, that is definitely the, like, throwing dick out on the table, like, I'm here. Right, we, we have, you know, Buscemi talking about tipping. We have, you know, Quentin himself talking about the meaning of... Uh, Madonna's like a virgin, uh, an absolutely fantastic scene. What do you like so much about Buscemi? 
Uh, I just like how kind of honest he is and, like, doesn't care. He doesn't pull any punches, man. He doesn't pull any punches, <laughs> and I just, I, I can relate to that. You know, like, you know, somebody, obviously, you know, going back to the tipping thing, it's just something that, like, we all do, and definitely as somebody who's worked in the service industry obviously understands that tipping is definitely preferred and, like, they're very thankful for, for all of that. But at the same time, it just, you know, that, that this concept of questioning social norms Right, something right. that I've always been a, sure. a, a big, just, you know, questioner of why we do things the mm-hmm. way we do. Mm-hmm. And I think, I don't know, just his character just, I think that that scene alone just kind of exemplifies the type of person he is. Very good. Uh, great choices, man. <laughs> what about you? Love it. Okay, so I'll go with, um, so my number one choice, and I'll go with two. As well. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and cheat a little as I tend to do. Uh, my first pick is uh, Samuel L. Jackson as Jules in Pulp Fiction. So, the more... I, I rewatched this film over the last couple weeks. Mm-hmm. When I was younger, I would have probably told you that Travolta's character as... Um, Vincent Vega? Vincent Vega would have been one of my favorite characters from that film. As I watch that film now... Jules is someone that I find fascinating because, you know, Pulp Fiction is a movie, as as the movie gets to the end, Jules is someone that you find, for me personally anyway, I find looking up as a character that has an arc and that is also trying to make his life better, right? right? Pulp Fiction... I am I I think Stacy as you know I am someone who I, I I rarely get emotional at film. I look at film as a study because that's what I went to school for. I I have a lot of academic ties to film. But with Pulp Fiction this last time I watched it and I've probably seen the movie I don't know 8 8 to 10 times in life probably. This last time I watched it a few weeks ago uh it's the only Tarantino film that I personally had somewhat and it's, it's weird to say it out loud, but emotional reaction to at the end, because I felt a tie with Jules character of especially in that last uh, scene at the diner, talking to Tim Roth's character um, just about, you know, the way he has chosen to try to live his life after what has happened to him earlier in the film and what he's going to go on. And as we see later, you know, in the film, um, what happens with Vincent's character uh, that that film, I think, really has a lot to say about the paths we choose in life and, and, and how it will go on to represent our future. And with that character, I, I find a lot of redemption in, in Jules. And I, I just, I respond to it. So it, it, it was actually, it was a, revolution, uh, a revolutionary experience, if I can put it that way. I don't know um, what else to say, but like, I wasn't expecting that type of emotion because I'd seen that movie so many times. And it's kind of interesting how something can hit you a certain way as you get older yeah, in life. At certain times of sure. your, your life, too. So, um, yeah, Jules is is a character I really just dig. I'll put it that way. Um, as a close second um, on the complete opposite <laughs> spectrum here, I'll go with Hans Landa from Inglorious Bastards. Um, because he, like, is such an intimidating character, right? Okay. And and he, he's someone that, 
as each scene we see him in, especially as the, you know, towards the first half of the film, he's just this character that as you, you see him on screen, he is, um, the definition of, uh, upsetting the definition of, uh, uh, a character that is evil, right? He's just, he, mm-hmm. he's someone that, um, coyfully evil. Yes, exactly. Uh, and the way he plays it is almost like a character, like that's very charismatic also at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's this charismatic evil and, you know, the opening scene of Inglorious Bastards is just this, you know, 20 minute scene with him and uh, Petite, uh, this milk farmer. And it's one of those like his character for that scene, that opening is like, wow, I love Hans Landa. But then right. you you see his dialogue and it's like his hate for Jews, his hate, you know, and obviously he's part of the, you know, of of uh, Hitler's regime. And but it's like it's scary. But at the same time, it's like also someone you weirdly are like want to. There's an attraction. There there. is. There's very much an attraction there. And it's it's kind of messes with your psyche a little bit. And that's something I've always respected at Tarantino films is when he has that character that is um, basically an awful character. But you somehow also want to side with. And so anyway. Those excellent are two of my famous right there. Yeah, mm-hmm. excellent choices. Stacy. I, I also picked two. Mine have a theme. Um, as you know, I I really enjoy emotional shit in movies. Um, that's my go-to. And I really enjoy the trope of old men with regret. Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't know why, but it always it just hits me. I, I probably listened to the American albums from Johnny Cash too much or something. <laughs> probably going to connect later on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Count it. Um, but uh, my first would be Bill from Kill Bill. Very nice. Um, you Everything about that character is what people say about that character. You see him in flashbacks, and it's not until part two at the very end that you actually meet this character. He's built to be the sinister force that's leading everything. Right. And then once you meet him, he's a dad. Like, he's just a dad. Yeah. Uh, he's yeah. a comic book nerd. And he is a he's a dad. He just, he wants to have this life, you know, with his daughter. And he feels this deep regret for what he did to that daughter's mother. Right. And I, I just love that sequence. And he is one of the, I, I know that Tarantino's talked about making spinoffs like the Vega Brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, but Bill is a character from his films that if you give me a five film series of bill, like if they could do some of that weird, like Will Smith, Gemini man tech on David. Shout Carradine, out to Ang Lee. Right. Yeah. If you could do that and give me like a five film series of bill up to that moment, I'm down. Very nice. Like that's awesome. I, he's a complicated character. He's very complicated. And I always have the feeling at the end, like he lets her do that to him. Mm-hmm. Like he he lets He's, her win. Yeah. Yeah. Like he yeah. has the upper hand at all times, but he he knows like this is what's best. Yeah. And yeah. I find that very moving. Sure. 
And his performance is phenomenal. And it's so nice to see an actor that, you know, I mean, David Carradine, probably most famous for, you know, Kung Fu and Roger Corman flicks from, you know, the 80s. Right. And it's nice to see that, you know, somebody like that elevated in a role. It's very, uh, very respectful to, you know, his legacy of work. I, I just love that character. That that sequence is so good. Excellent pick. Um, next would be Max Cherry, played by Robert Forrester Very and Jackie good. Brown, um, as another elderly man with regret. And I absolutely love it. I love the motif of the Delphonics playing. Yeah. And just, it's that song. And every, it, it that sells the romance, uh, this unrequited romance of the film. And I think that the ending of that movie, like that, oh man, it wrecks me. So <laughs> can we we can talk spoilers? I mean, that movie is twenty years old, yes. right? Spoilers, years old. yeah. Um, I'll just go ahead and say spoilers abound from all of uh, the QT films so we talk about. From when they out. meet at the end, um, to like hash out, you know, Dill, she's leaving. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they have that kiss, which is super sexy. And she leaves and he chooses not to follow her. And he gets that phone call. Yeah. And he tells him, like, I got to call you back. I need 30 minutes. Yeah. And then you just see him. Yep. And it's almost like that searcher's, like, John Ford shot where he walks back towards the doorway. And he's just all the weight of this like second chance at love mm-hmm. that he could have yeah. is just weighing and washing over him. And then he needs like a half hour to like, just settle on this. He does and conduct business. He needs a half hour and he needs to head to the airport. That's what he needs to do. But it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. You know, speaking of, it's so beautiful. I, of, and I love that performance. Robert Forrester, man. He is so good. He's so good, and I love him mm-hmm. in, like, genre picks. Uh, I don't know if either of you have seen this, but Alligator from 1980. I um, don't know if I have. I know about it. But yeah, he's it. a police detective in that, and, like, his presence definitely elevates the film. But just, like, seeing him in this role, it's Max Cherry. Like, it's such a well-written part, and... I, I think it is the most romantic that Tarantino has ever been Absolutely. with his characters in any of his films. Um, uh, uh, little uh, forewarning, I guess. We will get back to this very last scene sooner. Probably. I'll put it that way. <laughs> oh, great picks, man. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, let's move on to our next category. This is going to be the favorite use of music. Nathan, since I've been putting you on the spot to go first, um, I'm going to start this one off this time. How about that, guys? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Uh, So, okay, my favorite use of music. This will correspond very well from what uh, Stacy just talked about. Um, I'm going with uh, Across 110th Street by Bobby Womack, and this is from Jackie Brown. Now... This song appears a couple times in the movie, so you could it's say... It's from a movie from the same title, starring uh, Yofet Kodo and Aiden Quinn, Absolutely. I so, I could go with the beginning. I could go with the end. Guess what I'm going with? The, the end. end. The yeah. end. Um, so, this is one of the... As, as you talked about very nicely a second ago, the ending of this film, um, with 
with Max and Jackie, they have this embrace. Um, obviously, Jackie has, you know, she does play Max, but also as she leaves, you, if for me anyway, I mm-hmm. have this sense of she does truly care about him. And Max obviously cares about her. Mm-hmm. And she's, she tells him, you know, you can come with me. You know, we can get out of here. You can get out of here. And Max, um, you know, doesn't leave with her. But what does happen is we get Jackie, um, played by the magnificent uh, Pam Greer. Um, she leaves and she's in her car and the song 110th Street comes on the radio, which we get at the beginning of the film. Um, but it comes on the radio and she is singing the song um, as the song is playing in her car. And we just get this long shot of, you know, this long take of her singing, singing the song in her car. And for me, what I think that that shot says so much and just a very this take that is very minimalist, but it says so much in how she's feeling and the emotion that is coming through from that scene. Well, and what if you listen to the song, what it is about, and right. I, you know, we'll talk about this more because it's actually uh, my pick too. Very nice. <laughs> um, but um, it, the song it's validating the actions that somebody took to get out of the life that they were leading. As she's singing this, it's it's almost like she's justifying to herself everything she did. Mm-hmm. To get mm-hmm. out of the life that she had and, you know, breaking Max is part of that. And right. it's like the song is almost like powering her to not look back. And, and you know, Max's decision to not go with her is that is a logical decision. Right. And, you know, it breaks both of their hearts. Sure. And I think that's what's so beautiful about the use of that song Yep. You know, in that scene and closing it with her, you know, and the fact that you said, like, we don't get an airport scene. Right. Because we don't need that. We don't like, need it. We were given closure yep. there at the office. Like, these are not teenagers. You are not going to get the, like, don't go, mm-hmm. you know, yep. you know, chase at the airport. Yep. You're getting, like, two adults making a decision and sticking with it and, like, you know, dealing with the consequences of that. And I absolutely love it. It's a powerful scene. Um, again, this is just for me personally, it's apart from that jewel scene that I talked about earlier, this is one of the most affecting scenes in a QT film for me. Um, personally, um, I, I, I just find so much, um, emotion and, and, and so much just, just, this is, this this that film just builds up to that moment. You well, know? And, 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 and to, it's a lot going on, and and, and just a a, a very uh, uh, minimalist shot. Yeah, and well, and to build on that, <laughs> um, another thing I would say is the use of "Didn't I Blow Your Mind This Time" by the Delphonics. Right. Um, it is a love motif of that film. Um, it so much story revolves around the use of that song. And, you know, you first get Max hearing it at her, you know, home 
Um, mm-hmm, when mm-hmm. she's making him coffee, yeah. and like he's watching her, and like you get the sense that like he is falling in love at that moment. Absolutely. And then you get that wonderful scene where he's at the record store and he's like picking out the tapes, yep. and he gets that. Um, you get the um, the interaction with him and Samuel L. Jackson, where like I didn't know you liked the Delphonics. Absolutely. And but every every time that it's you know Max Cherry lingering on Jackie Brown. You know, you have this Delphonic song playing in the background, and I think it's a it's a wonderful love theme for the film. It's a and great job from QT. Just like as you said, early in the film, we get that cool. scene of her and him when they meet for the you know when they go to her apartment. I'll put it that right. way. They're having coffee. The Delphonics is on. He's like, you know, what's this? She tells him about it. It's one of those things that. In real life, someone can look on, like, um, thinking about a crush or someone you love. Like, hey, what are they into? Well, That's yeah. what I want to get into. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can relate songs to people. Sure. You know, Absolutely. like, and it, there, it, there are songs that have, you know, related to, you know, moments and stuff. Obviously, for sure. And that's that's a great thing about and this movie is, is that he... It's his most restrained use of music, I Absolutely. think. Um, the fact that he chose to make a song a motif of the right, film. Right. Um, he doesn't have that in the other films. Yep. Um, most of his other films, it's uh, you know picking from other films that he yep. likes, yep. and the fact that like yeah. doing the genre that he had with you know the black exploitation and mm-hmm. um, you know urban films from you know the late sixties and seventies, and the fact that he had so much to pull from and that he showed restraint in like really picking the song to be a motif throughout the film. I think it's fantastic and it works so well in telling the story. It does. You're absolutely right. And just, just to watch um, Max throughout the film, whether he's in his car um, by himself or with someone else, that song is always playing um, because he correlates that song with her. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's absolutely um, touching. So Nathan, how do you feel about Jackie Brown? Uh, the thing is, I need to rewatch it very, very soon. And I, honestly, this discussion is making me want to rewatch it. The last time I saw it was probably five years ago. Hey, you know what? Um, on that, uh, <laughs> I watched it just a couple days ago, yeah. and I liked the film when yeah. I was when I'd seen it. I hadn't seen it for eight to ten years. Right. So I, I was the in the same boat as you. I mean, there's very um, there's like a lot of scenes that stick with sure. me with um I can't remember the girl's name who's on the couch. Bridget Fonda. Yeah, Bridget, Bridget Fonda. Fonda yeah, just you know, I there's there's you know Robert De Niro freaking out. Right. Shooting her in the there's, parking lot. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of scenes yeah. that I remember. Sure. Quite, sure. Quite well, but it's definitely one of the films that I need to revisit. I hope you revisit it soon. I hope yeah. you have a good experience. I, I think both of us had a good experience. We watched it in different settings, but. I, I think it, as uh, if I speak, I don't mean to speak for you, but I think it impacted us both on a good level. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a film I've loved since it's come out, and I, I'm i sure it's probably just going to climb up the ladder. The older it, you get. Yeah, the older sure, I get. Sure, yeah. uh, It's We're going to talk about it a little more. I'll just put leave it at that. Nathan, as we have went on about this, what is your favorite use of music in a Tarantino um, film? My favorite use of music is actually the opening to The Hateful Eight. I thought right. Ennio Morricone, who is a legendary composer, mm-hmm. obviously we know him from uh, Clint Eastwood's uh, and Sergio Leone's 
films that we we saw in the uh, mid to late sixties. Yeah, with, uh, you know, the good, bad, the ugly, fistful of dollars, and sure, a few fo- sure. for a few dollars more. Uh, I just really love that spaghetti western um, idea uh, that he is is thrust into the opening scene. And I actually have the, the title here that I'm gonna yes go for it by all means. Uh, La Ultima Diligenza di Red Rock, the last stage to Red Rock. So obviously, it sets the stage to where we're going. Yes, well, what this entire thing's about is we're we're gonna hang somebody. And we're going to, you know, see where this road leads to us. This mm-hmm. long, that's that's another thing about this, this shot. This shot is, like, incredibly long. And it's just, like, and the entire movie is about tension. Yes. And, like, what the hell's going to happen. And, like, what is happening. And so I think that the, the score, in particular, uh, it just sticks with me. And it's definitely the one I've, one of the, scores that I've, I've revisited multiple, multiple times, because I, I know that for a fact, The Thing is one of my favorite films that I've ever seen from John Carpenter, and I know that Nia Morcone actually had kept a lot of um, the unreleased tracks from that John Carpenter film for this film. Uh, and I thought um, that was really interesting um, choice for him to use unreleased things, you know, like 30 years after sure. the fact, which is just insane to me. And so, I don't know, it's just something that's super memorable, and I know a lot of people, uh, at least some of my friends, with The Hateful Eight in particular, were not too kind or, like, are keen with the film, but uh, as somebody who really loves films that is um, ex- extremely delicate to the idea of there's a sense of one location mm-hmm. and a lot of characters and uh, kind of knowing yeah. nothing about, like, what's going on, and you kind of build upon that. And kind of second guessing yourself, like you, you know, you're you're playing that game of Clue with everybody, and like who did what, and what's going to happen next. Uh, and I think the music really, really fits with the the theme of yes this particular film. That score for the Hateful Eight is magnificent. Ah, uh, yeah, that that's a wonderful film. Very good, man. We're gonna move on. Okay, so our next category here is favorite song. And so, have you start us off here, Stacy? Okay. Um, this is okay. So obviously, our favorite use of music, um, I think, was self-explanatory for this last one. Yeah. How'd you go about okay. this category? Yeah. So my methodology for this favorite use of music. That's why I had two songs from Jackie Brown because I thought that it played into like the actual telling of the story. Um, as far as like favorite use of a song, I'm going with Reservoir Dogs, uh, "Stuck in the Middle with You," uh, because I think that is his most iconic use of music. Yeah. I can't hear that song without thinking about that dude getting his ear cut off. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> and I it's a it's such a good scene. You have that wonderful tracking shot of him going out to the car, getting the gasoline, and then coming back. Mm-hmm. And it's like you don't know what's going to happen. And he just Because that camera just just stays. it just stays with him. Yeah. Kind of like you know, right around the shoulder. Yep. Um, kind of uh, imitating um, th- those action shots that will get Full Metal Jacket, you know, where it's like sure, right sure. on the shoulder. He he comes in, like Michael Madsen's so good in this film, and it's sad that he, he's not really, he his career never really took off outside of Tarantino films, which is kind of a bummer. Yep. I mean, he was in like, what, Species? That's probably the biggest film he was in that right. wasn't a and Tarantino I, film? I think it is... Uh, 
He's so nice, good in this he movie. He is so good. And, and, and I do love that Tarantino continues, even to if use very him, yeah. roles, he continues to have him in his films. Yeah, he, I mean, he's great as Bud and Kill Bill. And, right. Yeah, so you get this wonderful exchange of, he knows the cop doesn't know anything. Right. He's like, I'm, I'm going to torture you anyways. Yep. And the only thing you can hope for is a quick death, but you're not going to get it. You're not going to get that. Yep. And I, that scene, it's so gross. And it's, it's referencing, you know, like the wonderful original Django, you know, because they have that ear cutting scene yep. in that film. And it, it's like a perfect marriage of all the stuff that Tarantino loves. You have a reference to this old 60s Western. Yeah. You have, yep. um, you know, like th- this gangster thing going on. And you have just th- this feeling of old time radio with the host and... It plays throughout the whole film. You get the yeah. the host of the radio show playing these golden oldies, and yeah. it is nice yeah. that um, very nostalgic and yeah. I mean, the use of the song is just fantastic. Excellent choice. I will have a little more to say. Not that that's my pick, but where you're going from that here in a second, Nathan. What is your choice? Uh, my pick is actually uh, from Kill Bill. Volume one, don't let me be misunderstood. When, yes. When Oran and uh, the bride fought, uh, the very, 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 very end, I thought this was a re, a uh, really great revision of what the song used to be. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Santa Esmeralda featuring Leroy Gomez, uh, that that's the um, the people who reimagined this song because it's uh, it's kind of a classic song. I remember at least uh, parts of it uh, being an original song from something else. But I, I do like this. Uh, there's like a 10-minute version of it on the oh, on the okay. soundtrack, which is like, uh, uh, you know, immense. But at the same time, is extremely encapsulating of what this scene and what uh, this is going to mean for the next chapter in Volume yeah. 2. And I think this is a, a really nice, you know, homage to Lady Snowblood as well. And I, I Very think, true. Very I true. think this um, is just a really great use of a song um, that I definitely have an, an a vision every single time I hear the song I immediately think of of that scene and what's to you know to come from that yes excellent choice uh I want to ask you guys real quick um in this I probably did a bad job of uh, giving you guys this category um bad job by you I will take the uh, negative on this but what I did and I'm, I'm curious on, on both of your choices because how I looked at this category was a song that I love, but also a song that I discovered. When I think of your your pick, Stacey, of mm-hmm. Stuck in the Middle with You, that was a big moment for me as well. But I'd never heard the song before. This Stuck movie. in the Middle with You? Yeah. You, I still had its ne- wheels. I had never yeah. heard it before. Yeah. Um, so like for me, that was a moment of discovery. What you talked about, Nathan, on, on that song from Kill Bill, I agree. I think it's a great use of a song. I had never heard that song before. Um, so how I kind of went about this category was a song that I hadn't heard before that kind of, it's a part of my life now. I'll put it that way. The song? Sure. Like, when you wake up in the morning, it's the first thing you play? Every single morning, I'm like, <laughs> let's go. Just an aside, <laughs> right? 
So when he was doing notes for the, I assume he was doing notes for this. I walked by his door. He's wearing a safari hat with binoculars, <laughs> just sitting in a chair, writing notes. I've been drunk all day. What can I say? <laughs> it's, it's, it's all for the discovery. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So Whatever you have to wear to do that. Yeah. yeah. Hats, hats off or hats on. Hats to on to you. Very nice. <laughs> with that being said, as, as I, I went about that category, again, with with that kind of in mind. And I wish I would have... I think you guys both picked excellent choices, so obviously it worked out. But I, I wish I could have put that caveat on it because that's how I went about with this category. Was um, I went with Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon um, from Pulp Fiction. Um, this is by Urge Overkill. And it's a song, again, I, I'd never heard before. And it's, it's a song that that I think about quite often. Um, and obviously association with the scene where in the, in the film we have uh, Travolta's character, Vince Vega and Uma Thurman's character. Um, why can't I think of her name in the film right now? Um, Marcel Wallace's wife. Uh, I'm an awful person. I'm sorry. I'm um, I'm Mia, Mia Wallace. I got it. Mm. Okay. Um, as uh, they come back from a night out, um, you know, he's gone to the bathroom. Um, she's put on some music. Um, she is, they're both in very good spirits. Um, they've had a good night. Um, Travolta, while the, the song starts playing, he's in the bathroom telling himself, uh, you know, this is my boss's wife. You're not going to do anything. You're going to go home. You're going to jerk off. You're going to go to bed. And Mia Wallace, you know, while he's in the bathroom, she's in the living room. And, you know, she's having a good night as well. They have just won a trophy at their dance contest at, uh, uh, what's the name of the place? The Fictional Bar. The Fictional Bar. Um, and... Yes, where they do the dance. Yes, the dance. <laughs> and anyway, uh, <laughs> I just did finger eyes. Yes, at him. I like it. Um, so obviously they're they're both in very good moods, and she is obviously we've seen early in the film. Um, she has a bit of a cocaine addiction, mm -hmm. and she is searching in his uh, trench coat that he's left in the living room there for some cocaine. She <clears> finds <throat> heroin, which she doesn't know which is heroin. She takes. Um, a snuff of it and obviously she overdoses while this song is playing in the background and this you know the the song itself is just it's a pop song and, and I am a type of person that I love pop songs and it's a song that like obviously I love but it's also a song that I always think about that scene when I think about the song and to me that was what I what is going for for when I go best song? Not like, I think there's a difference because this was a discovery for me and it's sure. something I'll always remember as a discovery because I discovered from a QT film. Just an observation. Um, I don't know if this holds true for you, but did we all just pick a song from the first Tarantino movie that we've seen? I believe we all did. It's true, and I could have picked another one. But <laughs> <laughs> from, um, so like, you know how I, I talked a little bit about it's on the fact of discovery. Yeah. 
until I watched Shogun Assassin um, and Lady Snowblood, I didn't think, I didn't understand the Liquid Swords connection. With sure, Snow, sure. With that, and I didn't, un- or with um, the Lone Wolf and Cub. Yeah. And I didn't understand the Flowers of Carnage song from Kill Bill with Lady Snowblood. Yeah. I had no idea. Very, very nice. And so that's something that I will always remember now. Absolutely. That's a recent discovery. Yep. Also, by the way, this is out of context, but Jack Rabbit Slims, that is the name of the restaurant that they come back from. Did this just come back to you? Just out of nowhere. Man, you can see I do not have a phone or any electronic device in my area. Like you were possessed by an entity of knowledge. Yes, knowledge. Uh, a jackrabbit. Jackrabbit <laughs> nailed it. Uh, okay, very good, guys. Um, <laughs> let's move on. Uh, um, up next, we uh, our our uh, next. Uh, uh, I am drunk right now. I'm category. Sorry. Our category. next category. Thank yes, you. Yes. Is our favorite tension building scene, Nathan? Let's go back to you. Uh, what is your uh, num- your favorite tension building scene from a Tarantino film? I think um, it was hard for me to choose this because there's it, so many. There's so many, but I think from Django Unchained, the Mandingo fights. Ooh, okay. I think that um, that scene in particular shows the the sign of uh, you know. We got Candy, Mr. Candy. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, he's got that sly, you know, you know, I, I, we were talking a little bit about Hans earlier. We were talking about people that we were like, you know, we actually like this villain a little bit. He's got a little bit of charisma to him, but you really don't know uh, the extent of what they can do. Right. Until this particular scene in Django Unchained, mm-hmm. where these Mandingo fights are you having two slaves fight to the death. Yeah. And you can just tell based on the way Tarantino filmed this. Uh, and you can just tell, just based on Jamie Foxx's performance, uh, how much this upset him, and how much this, right. uh, you could tell what was going on in, in his psyche. And I think this tension to where we would eventually, you know, uh, culminate to where the discovery of the true intentions of why Christoph Walt and Jamie Foxx are actually at this plantation yep. are, are happening, that's the start of it. I think that's, well, I mean, obviously you could go all the way back to, like, when they were, like, kind of coming into the, the plantation and seeing all the stuff to the side of, of the plantation and the slaves who were there already. But this one was where it really hit home, I think. Yeah. The it, tension really hit. Absolutely. Um. So for referential stuff, have you seen the film Mandingo? I have not. It is a terrifying fever dream that's super gross. And Ruben Fleischer? Yeah, I believe so, and it, it like yeah, he's a big name director at the time. Uh, I think it's a Dino De Laurentiis produced film. Uh, Ken Norton, I believe, stars in it. Uh, Susan George, but it is it is absolutely messed up and gross, and I believe he pulled a lot of stuff from that. Um, Very good. Yeah, if you ever get a chance, it, <laughs> you wanna whatever feelings you had time. during that scene, extrapolate that to two and a half hours. Now I could be wrong. In that scene, you talk about Leo's character as Mr. Candy. Yeah. Is this the right scene where, like, like there's there's a moment where, like, he has his... Like, he is just in, like... Vicious. Viciousness. Like, like does this, like, you can't see this because I'm on microphone. <laughs> but he, like, grabs his fists and, like, in such excitement that he, like, rears back. And it's, like, this 
yes feeling of watching these two fight. Is that the right scene, or is that a different? Is that later? In well, the there's film? an animalistic sense to you're right. Like this, this primal desire to see car, like just a fight. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, you're in, and yes. also like have this 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 power mm-hmm. over another person, and you know dictating the lives of like you are not going to see. The light of day, unless you do this for me. Yeah, yeah, it's and, gross. And yeah, it's extremely gross, and it's just it's one of the things I can just I can just it drips, I, and there's a lot of sweat involved with it. Right. Yeah. I mean, both both physically, um, for the you know the compatriots who are fighting in this Mendingo fight, mm-hmm. but also for Jamie Foxx's character and the tension building between Candy and him. Yeah, it, it's a very effective, disturbing scene. Very good pick. That's my tension building. All yeah. right. Okay. Um, so I, for my scene, um, I'm going to go with the restaurant scene in Inglorious Bastards with Hans Landa mm. and Shoshana. So in the opening scene, um, Hans has um, his soldiers basically murder Shoshana's family. Um, Shoshana is able to escape. Obviously, Hans in the opening scene, sees her escape. He could have shot, shot her. He chooses not to. He lets her go. Um, later in the film, I, I think it's close to the midway point, maybe not quite. Um, these two characters re-meet four years later, and um, it's in this restaurant, and Hans Landa, has, who's played by Christoph Waltz, um, buys them both uh, strudels, strudels, Am I saying that right? I'm a little drunk right now. Strudels. Yeah, it's, it's her and Daniel Brühl, right? I, because yes. he's playing the... Uh, who's the American film star from World War II? Yes, he, he is in that... He's like the German right? prototype of that. Yes, Why can't can I, I think of that man's name? Yes. He's in Red Badge of Courage. Uh, yes, I know what you I'm speak of. I'm not distracting. <laughs> it's all good right now. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, you know... Why she's in this situation is because, uh, you know, Daniel Brühl's character, played by, um, uh, who he plays, I'm sorry. Your word salad. I'm just destroying everything right now. Uh, Daniel Brühl's character has basically told the German. Audie Murphy. Exactly. That's the American one. It is Audie Murphy. Very good. Um, anyway, you know, he's, he's, he's told, uh, the German side about her cinema, right? And he has become fascinated with her and he wants his film to premiere at her cinema. Mm -hmm. And so they bring her in and they have a conversation. And so everyone else leaves and, uh, Hans Landa appears in the scene and he's at the, the table, just him and her. And he orders them strudel. He orders them cream to put on top of the strudel. Obviously, we as the audience know who Shoshana is. Um, we know that he killed her family four years prior. And I think the, the film does a good job of building this tension um, because I, we're not sure if... He knows her. If he knows her. Yeah, there are yeah. But there are small hints that make you believe that he does. Because when what is he do? He's playing a larger game. Exactly. What does he first do when they order food? He <clears throat> says, she'll have a milk. Uh-huh. Right? Obviously, in the opening scenes, in, the, in the farm, 
you know, he's drinking milk at that farm. And it, it's a callback to that. So it's it's this very intense conversation. It's intense in how the film is, is, is the text is reading because it's this conversation of talking about her boyfriend who is black, um, talking about how they don't they they're not going to he is a he runs the projection at her theater mm-hmm. and how she, they're not going to allow him to run the projection because he's black. And how, you know, do you have access to that projection? Because we would rather have you run that projection than him. And these are, obviously she's already traumatized from him killing her family, but it's also bringing back the memory of his prejudice, not just against black people, but also against Jewish people, and how much of a monster he actually is. Mm -hmm. I think the scene is just such brilliance and... What it ultimately comes down to is nothing actually happens in that scene, but the buildup of you as the audience knowing what she's going through at that time. And as the scene ends, when he leaves the table, just her that breathe out yeah. in that very obviously frustration of knowing that the person that killed your family was at that table with you and you having to act like Keeping yourself composed during that whole situation. I think it's a very um, excellent use of um, tension building in that scene. Another great scene from that film, uh, the bar, the Michael Fassbender sequence. uh, So good. good. (laughs) Guns pointed at dicks and playing that game of, uh, you know, what's on my head. Right. And um, yes, yeah, that whole sequence, that's what, like 20, 25 minutes of just... Just dialogue-driven tension, absolutely. Until you you misslip on a dialogue or a dialect, I like you know. Just, <laughs> uh, you just mess up one little thing, and like oh, your whole your whole gig's up. Yeah. Yes, uh, I don't know about you guys. Um, for me, that was I hadn't seen Hunger at the time. I when, I still haven't seen it. Yeah, and same. So that was the first time I'd been personally exposed um, to Michael ex- Fassbender. Exactly. Yeah. Until you were exposed to Michael Fassbender and Shame. When I saw the I whole st- bit. Oh God, I yeah. still haven't seen it. That or that bit. Yes. Well, listen, that he has bit. a very impressive yes. penis. <laughs> That's where I was getting the bit part. It is, <laughs> it is an impressive penis. That I have is, that movie. He, he had more to lose in that Inglorious Bastard <laughs> shoot off. Is that the first <laughs> Steve McQueen movie? Uh, uh, hunger. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. hunger is. I believe it is. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So anyway. very good. Yeah, Michael Fassbender is freaking killer in that. Apparently, um, because I listened to Rewatchables, the sure. um, Ringer podcast, they did Inglorious Bastards, and I guess uh, Fassbender, uh, auditioned for the uh, Brad Pitt role and was mm. pretty bummed out that he didn't get it. Right. But. Right. I mean, he's phenomenal in Bastards. He is. I mean, that that sequence is one of the best sequences in the film. Absolutely. For and yeah, wonderful tension building for a small part as he technically has. It's still twenty minutes worth, but it it leaves an impression. Yeah, I, right. I just wanted to bring that up because my pick we are not going to talk about. Okay. Um, because you know spoilers and shit. But once upon a time in Hollywood, Cliff on the ranch. Very um, nice. I think the tension nice. built in that scene. Because, again, how we talked about earlier, um, however many minutes ago, you know, it, it's playing on real world expectations. Like, you know what 
the real world, you know, what happened, and you're bringing a fictional character into it, so you don't really know what the stakes are. And yeah. I think he does a wonderful job of building tension. I think it's wonderfully shot and edited. Yep. And uh, that's just a landmark scene in that film. It's It's a scene that, like... I don't care if you know about real life or not. Um, it's a scene that gets your blood pumping. I'll put it that right, way. You still don't know what's going to happen. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely and no idea. I was. I, I felt the same way as as you guys when that scene happened. It's it's like, um, it's a lot of tension, a lot of built up tension, and I personally like. Obviously, I know what happens in real life, but. But also in this movie, you know what Tarantino has done in his recent movies. Um, and you don't know what he's going to do with the film. So speaking on this category, um, as we talked about, you know, from, you know, the disgusting to like the Hitchcockian sure. like levels of tension building. What does a Tarantino horror film look like? <laughs> Good question. I would. <laughs> and and. Yeah, I, I mean, he has scenes that that could be thought of as horrific. Mm-hmm. I would love to see a full-on horror film from Quentin. I think that would be a lot of fun. I think it might be along the lines of those fights in Django. Yeah, um, sure. You know, I mean, obviously, it might be the ear scene in, in Reservoir Dogs. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, he, yeah. he got a lot of, I mean, he, he could do it yeah. if he needed to. I, I, would, I would love to see it's a, walking, a full-blown it's like a thin line between, like, auteur and, um, you know, Rob Zombie. Sure. Excellent. Yeah, it's a thin line. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm not saying that. Yeah, I, I love some it. of Rob Zombie's sure, stuff. Sure, sure, But, sure. yeah, it's... Yeah, the way he, like, pedals, yeah. you know, he pushes it right to... Right to the edge. The comfort zone. If not, somewhat over. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right, um... I think uh, that's it for our subcategories. Are you guys ready to top three? Get into our top, top three here. Yeah. Three-ish. All right. Yeah, three ish. What is it? So three ish. Are you <laughs> are are you gonna fit all nine films into the top three? I would love to because, um, for me personally, there's not a Quentin film that I dislike. But I, I will. Think we all share that sentiment, maybe. Um, Although I will say, yes, know, go this for isn't it. Something that I, I still have not seen. Death Proof. Okay. I know you're kind of lower on Death, death Proof. Yes, but Death Proof, while... Well, yeah, it, it, it's okay. Um, there is a wonderful uh, Kurt Russell performance in it, and the last act of that movie is fantastic. Is, is Kurt Russell kind of um, playing more on the... Um, wow, I'm blanking right now. On the... On his 80s side um, of his his old self when he's you know like playing Jack Burton and like it, it's actually closer to uh, Cliff in Once Upon a Time okay excellent um, which I think is it, a, it's like a, a romance you know Parker, to like the stuntman the the yeah yeah, yeah. Right, um, which I, I think is absolutely brilliant that he has Russell do the narrative the voiceover on yeah. Once Upon a Time and, and it is like a um, you know a washed out stuntman doing atrocities sure that that's the premise of the film uh-huh. and you know he's fantastic in it um i just find that film to be tarantino's most indulgent uh so he has this first group of girls that 
I think that he spends too much time on and the dialogue is very flowery. It's like his to the extreme. Mm. I'll say this about Death Proof. I, from the sounds of it, it's not going to come up from either of you two. It's also not going to come up from me. Although I, I do like the film. Um, I haven't watched the film in full. Actually, this is embarrassing to say, but since it was in theaters... Um, so that is a film I personally need to revisit, especially the, uh, his the direct, extended the cut. Extended I've never cut. seen his extended so, cut, but I, I would say if you want to watch it, yeah, I will uh, eventually. Um, I would go like, I would visit Grindhouse first, okay, because like seeing that as a whole, like that enriches the experience. I think this is. Coming up with it, I know this could be a completely different podcast topic, but I, I really love the idea of double features. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't really think of very many films that are released in a in a way that kind of kind of shows showcases this concept of like you should watch these together. And yeah. and there and the thing is, you know, I mean at the same time, kind of a thing. It's like, well, like this is a project that Robert Rodriguez done and Quentin Tarantino has done. And this is a, a combination effort. They're really nothing to do with each other, but they're just companion pieces to each other. Right. And I, I do I think, think cool. in Grindhouse is interesting because obviously the projects, um, the point of the project was this this Grindhouse um, type of well, filmmaking. Well, to make it a full experience right. as if you were going to the drive-in, right. you exactly. know, one right. night in the 70s. Yeah. but... And you, you get the other filmmakers, you know, with the trailers, like, sure. you know, Rob Zombie, right. uh, um, Edgar Wright. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Sure. There's others. Uh, Eli Roth, I think. Yeah, Eli Roth has on one, the, the Thanksgiving. 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 <laughs> um, but to your point, Nathan, I, I do believe, um, well, when watching the movie as a whole, uh, you see the differences in the style of filmmaking, obviously, from... Rodriguez to Tarantino. Um, I am I I am very much interested in Death Proof. Uh, I I didn't um, I liked it at the time. I didn't love it, but it is also a movie that I need to revisit, especially in the director's cut version. So I will go ahead and and tell the audience that I have not revisited revisited it in that form. Maybe they'll think less of you now. They probably do. I am. You didn't do your homework. Shit. Okay. So, as we go to our top three films, I will start things off and I will uh, move them to Nathan. And Stacy, you can finish us off. Um, Number uh, three on my list here, I'm going to go with Inglorious Bastards, my number three uh, Quentin Tarantino film. Uh, I love this movie. As we've talked about, there's not a Tarantino film I really don't like. But um, this movie is so good. Um, it's basically the thing about Glorious Bastards is it's broken down into these these scenes, right? There's only what maybe a handful mm-hmm. of scenes in the film, maybe a little mm-hmm. more. But the almost each scene is is building to towards something, and. I just love his approach to that. Uh, you know, the opening scene is like 20 to 24 minutes of just two people talking in a room with um, 
basically quote-unquote prisoners underneath the floorboard as Hans Landa knows that they are in there and he is kind of playing uh, Mr. Petit the whole time knowing that they're under there but uh, does it in a way of being almost uh, this friendly uh, villain, (laughs) which I find quite uh, compelling and interesting. And as the film goes on, um, we get that scene all the way up through, um, as I've talked about earlier, Shoshana and Hans Landa's um, restaurant scene, all the way through the Inglourious Bastards themselves, you know, taking the scalps from others, all the way through the end with the theater scene of the, um, sorry, spoilers ahead. <laughs> if you've never seen Glorious Bastards, um, well, I don't know years. what to tell you exactly. <laughs> All the way to the fictionalized um, death of the Nazi uh, generals and Hitler himself. Uh, this is a movie I find completely compelling. Also, I find it endlessly watchable, mm-hmm. and I find, uh, like I said earlier, almost every scene, um, this like Tarantino's um, use of um, of uh, just tension building, and it's unlike any of his other films, as in how from scene to scene tension just builds and builds and builds until that final moment of. Uh, euphoria. Yeah, that nice theater performance at the end. Yes, exactly. And another thing, which I think corresponds with, you know, we've talked about Once Upon a Time in in uh, Hollywood, but as you guys, if you guys have noticed at the beginning of Glorious Bastards itself, it also has a Once Upon a Time dot dot dot. Yeah. Um, in um, occupied France, correct. So, uh. I love the um, correspondence between those two as well. I think it's an excellent film. That's my it's my pick. third pick too. Very nice. Uh, for a lot of the things that Nolan's already talked about, I, I really love the film, and I, I think that it's a, a really great um, film that really just has a bunch of characters that you love and hate, and you know, honestly, for from scene to scene, you really don't know why you love all those characters you pretty much honestly i would say i i mostly love every character in that film and that's the thing and you know obviously you're gonna hate some of those characters too simultaneously and the thing is about it just i think it's just speaks to the performances of that movie mm-hmm. and i just mm-hmm. think from scene to scene you see you know just high caliber actors and actresses just really kind of expressing uh, this fairy tale notion of what probably did happen. Absolutely. And probably didn't happen. Yeah. You got that stuff that there are a lot of, there's a lot of truth to this ugly nature of what actually happened to Jews during this sure. entire time sure. um, of war. And that's the, that's the weird thing about this. It's almost like it's, it's a weird uh, Mel Brooks kind of approach to it. But also, it takes the the Tarantino approach, or just the, that kind of violent approach, um, to an, a really historical event. But you you fictionalize it, and you rationalize it a little bit more towards the like it's inter- it's highly rewatchable and it's enter- entertaining. Absolutely. But it definitely still kind of delivers in that notion of 
you you relish in the fact that the bad guys got what they got. Yeah, and you love that. Yeah, it, it's it's the start of I like to call the third phase of Tarantino and his revisionist history, um, and he will go on to kind of work through these ideas where he's at right now. Mm-hmm. So very good pick, Stacy. Well, um, I'm just gonna. My list is not going to be in order because I'm just going to play off because yes. I think you and I have the same entries. Okay. Very so, nice. um, Inglorious would be my number one. Okay. Um, You're going to talk about it now. Yeah. So, I think it's his best directed film. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think Pulp Fiction is his most important film, but I think that Inglorious Bastards, as, as you guys were saying, like it's so rewatchable. You have all these likable characters. Um, you know, the fact that you get a movie that makes Eli Roth like such a likable person. Like, that's pretty <laughs> awesome. <laughs> the bear Jew. No, in, in, in all the documentaries I've seen and stuff, like, he's really cool. I don't dig his movies, but... Right. right you know, right. Yeah. yeah, he he seems like a cool dude who's with it. Um, sure. But yeah, that movie... I. I just think it's absolutely fantastic. It, it's the one movie of his that, uh, you know, when thinking about, like, I want to go through and rewatch all the Tarantino films. Like, that's the one I'm most excited to go back right. and rewatch. Yeah. Right. So that's why it's my number one. Um, as far as my list goes, it's probably fluid. Like, these could switch at any time. Like right, I said, exactly. I do think yeah. Pulp Fiction I, is his most important yes. film. Um, I think it's the most important film from the, you know, 90s yep. indie wave. I, I would like to double down on what you just said there. Like, this, the, I think the, the list, especially for Quentin's films, they they can all be interchangeable here. Because, right. Um, I do agree with that. I think that's very, very well said. These are what are hitting me this week. Mm-hmm. Ask me in a month, it may change. That's, a, that's a, something that when you ask me to come up with this list, that, uh, I know I've made a list somewhere plenty of times before. I've said it uh, on on video. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's always going to change. Yes. Very well. Very well done, Mr. Glover. Okay. Uh, we're going to move on. So, okay. As you all know, I am a cheater. My number <laughs> two is my cheat from this list. And I've got Jackie Brown. And I do have Once Upon a Time dot 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 in Hollywood. So... Inglorious was actually your number four. Or... Number eh. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. You cheater. I'm nothing but a cheater, but I am a cheater nonetheless. <laughs> I need help. Help me. <laughs> uh, what I would like to say about both these movies, obviously we've, we've talked a decent amount about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We've also talked about uh, Jackie Brown a decent amount earlier in the film. I find both of these films... Uh, kind of Quentin at his uh, sweetest and um, his most uh, emotional, emotional, his yeah. most loving, romantic, uh, romantic. Yes. But both these films, you know, while again, we're trying not to spoil this episode because there are, I know that once upon a time is new. I know a lot of people have seen it. There's a lot of people that haven't. Um, I will say that Jackie, the difference between the two is clearly 
we'll just put it in, in a violent manner, right? There, there is violence in one. There is not as much violence in the other to in the film. But they, I think they both end on this, this notion of um, what could be, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I like the fact that that is something you can take away from both those films. Um, I think they are both um, probably the most mature films from Quentin. Um, I find they are both similar as in, you know, a lot of the middle sections of both films are these hangout movies. Yes, they do have a point, but they are both less in story and plotting than some of his other films. And that um, you were just there with these characters in the moment and it takes you to a spot towards the end. But at the time, um, you're kind of just hanging out with these people and kind of getting to know them and understand them. And I love that in both these films. Um, I find them both um, very highly rewatchable, very highly rewarding from their rewatches. And I can't wait to watch them both more. And so I will just say, um, some may call it recency bias. I don't care. I'm going to call it um, that they are both masterpieces. And I believe in that. And I can't wait to watch Once Upon a Time and Jackie Brown again. So those are my number twos. Excellent. Nathan. Um, my number two is his second most recent film, Hateful Eight. Okay. Uh, this movie actually hit me um, a little harder than I thought it would. Um, like I said initially when I was talking about the Neo Morricone uh, theme, I just... I was initially attracted to this film. I remember the, the marketing very well of this movie, obviously being a fan of Kill Bill. Uh, before this, obviously, Django came sure. out right before Hateful Eight. And then Inglorious Bastards, I, I was I was on board with Tarantino at this time, and I was very excited to see this Western of his. Uh, this Western um, that reminded me um, of just this isolated area um, and honestly, like I said, uh, I mentioned Neo Morricone with The Thing and John Carpenter. Sure. Like, it's very, like, you are you are alone in a secluded area. You're in this place with these characters the whole time. Exactly. And you have no idea how everything's going to play out. And, I don't know, just movies that really move me, in particular, uh, I'm thinking, like, Twelve Angry Men... Mm-hmm. Or you know, uh, I know more recently, Carnage. You know, Roman Polanski did. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, that um, there was a play prior to that, but th- these films really get to me because I, it, it's just kind of uh, just a concept of trying to figure out what's going on. And these these people being stuck with each other. Yeah. The whole time. And that's the thing is like you people are ha- they have to communicate with each other mm-hmm. and they have to figure out what's going on, uh, and there's like there's a time factor for at least Hateful Eight, you know, like he has to, you know, he's gonna have to go into town at this particular time, to, you know, the tomorrow or, you know, next week, or like that, there's a time period with it and, I don't know, there's something about this film that really has stuck with me ever since I saw it. It may be longer, and I still want to see the Netflix extended. Yeah, the Roadhouse version. The, the Roadhouse version. I don't believe any of us have seen that version yet. Yeah, not yet. But there's something about just watching westerns that uh, has really kind of piqued my interest as I've gotten older. I, I was never really particularly interested in those, but I, I know that my father watches a lot of westerns. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm just turning more into my father. 
But, Aren't we all? Well, we all eventually do. <laughs> um, but there's something about this redemption um, arc, of, especially really particular in Westerns, maybe not so much in Hateful Eight, but um, just Westerns speak to me a little bit more the older I get. Um, and this is a very unique take on uh, that genre. And I think, you know, this it's something where, like, he kind of combines some, some things that I have never really, like, thought about in a setting that I would never really think about. Very nice. It's a beautiful film. It's one of those movies, as I'm speaking right now, as a person who is a bit intoxicated, um, the first time I watched Hateful mm-hmm. Eight, um, I watched it with you, Stacy, and yeah. uh, Melanie and Kendra, our friends. And uh, the first time I watched it, I was a bit intoxicated. <laughs> um, I think I may have passed out in the last mm-hmm. third of the film. Um, but uh, Bad job by you. Bad job by me. I, <laughs> but what's funny about that experience is the next day, um, I actually went and bought a ticket and watched it again. Yeah. And I had a complete... Lee, I I was in love with the film. I, yeah, I think it's a great no, experience. It is wonderful. Um, I think it's, I think what's cool about that movie is even though it's set in one place, it's so cinematic. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. I love that shot when they're going to check. Uh, the, uh, this is stuff like in the storage shed or whatever, and they're like going on the line, mm-hmm. and you got like the lanterns. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's shot so well. It, it brings up, you know, like, great westerns, like The Great Silence. Absolutely. As, as and, you know, the real villain in the third act is absolutely phenomenal, too. Yeah. It's... I can't believe we haven't even talked about the performances of the, any of the actors. Obviously. Yeah. So good. Kurt Russell is Actress. amazing. Bruce Dern. Bruce Dern, Samuel L. Jackson. Um, they're all so good. Um... Jennifer Jason Lee has never turned in a bad performance. She's very good. I'm surprised she didn't win that year. Yeah. You know, uh, we get Channing Channing Tatum appears out a little bit. Channing Tatum. Yes. um, It's a very good movie. It's a very good choice. Um, Like you said, there there is a very small category of films of westerns that take place in the snow. And this is one of them. um, And it doesn't. A remarkably good job. I also find it interesting that Quentin filmed this on 70 millimeter and he kind of give, gave everyone a bit of a, you know, funny FU as in putting the whole film kind of in this one space. Inside yeah, this cabin. it's not like a dynamic Western like uh, Once Upon a Time in the West is right. like, mm-hmm. this is not a grand action flick. You know, this is this is a smaller thing. This is like a this is like Rio Bravo. Only yeah. they cut out the last two reels. Right, right. Like, you don't get a battle scene. Yeah. It's just guys hanging out in a room. Yeah. You know, something I just realized as I was thinking about it, uh, with this kind of, you know, going back to Inglorious Bastards, how we have all those likable characters, I can say the opposite for this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would say they're more despicable. Almost yeah. Every no, single one of you're them absolutely right. Is more despicable yep. than likable. Well, there's something enchanting about that. Right. Like, you want to, like... like, the racist character and, like, the sheriff. Uh Uh-huh. Like, like he's the most likable character in the whole damn movie. Yeah. And that's the thing. And, like, it's because he, you know, eventually rediscovers what he's he's about. Yes. But you want to peel back the layers on all of these characters to find out what actually is going on and, like, what the motives are. Right. Why is is Bruce Dern the way he is? Why is Samuel L. Jackson the way he is? Why is, um... Um... Uh... 
Russell. Kurt Russell, the way he is. You got Walter Goggins. Walter Goggins. Walter Goggins. Yeah, he might way. be the most likable you know, character. Yeah, and he's great. These, yes, you are a hundred percent right, and I, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. <laughs> yeah, that's a wonderful <laughs> film. All right, so for my next pick. Um, I'm just gonna vibe off of Nolan because uh, you picked uh, Jackie Brown for your number two. I did. Jackie Brown is actually my number three, and uh, we I I feel like I've talked about this film ad nauseum thus far. So for you know reference back an hour or so ago, <laughs> all the reasons I love this film. Um, it, it's it's a tighter film. Yes. Not exactly plot driven. More character driven, mm-hmm. and old man with Gret, I love it. It's uh, absolutely wonderful. Pam Greer is fantastic, and like man, she's had such a great like career. Sure, and she's mostly been in these black exploitation and like Roger Corman nudie flicks, and the fact that like she gets to like show up in like this prestige film and just freaking knock it out of the park. Yeah. Like, she's so freaking powerful in this movie. Like, she holds all the cards in her hand, and I think that's awesome. Yeah. Like, just paying reverence to, you know, an actress, you know, like that. And in this film, I believe, like, I think she's already in her 50s by the time this film, you know, starts shooting, and she looks great. So good. Unbelievable. Absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. Pam Greer, Jackie Brown, Robert Forster... Phenomenal. You get Chris Tucker in there. There's not enough Chris Tucker in the world. Beaumont. Yeah. He's fantastic. Yeah. Sam Jackson's so good. Uh, one thing, uh, this has nothing to do with uh, any badness from anyone. I just want to point out um, the last we see of Max Cherry. Uh-huh. Um, he is wearing a outfit that I find offensive. What? <laughs> what is he wearing? The last scene. Uh, that we see Max Cherry in. He's wearing um, some pants that he has brought up to his waist. Okay. With a shirt tucked into that waist. Why are you offended? As a, I look at myself as a stylish person. As a stylish Keep in mind, I walked by your door today. You were wearing a safari hat with binoculars. Damn right. And I felt good about it every second. What were you looking for in those binoculars? <laughs> Not that uh, anybody that who's look. peeping in, man. <laughs> I was looking for not freaking, you know, Max Cherry wearing waiters, you know. He's an old man. What are you gonna look like when you're sixty? Yeah. Hopefully not like Max Cherry. Also recall nineteen ninety seven. Yeah, these are all fair points. Okay, <laughs> dude has like a pager. He did have a pager. I yeah. love. I love Max Cherry. I'm just Max Cherry is one of the great characters. He is so good. I just wanted to point out that his outfit is atrocious. It, it's a little bad, and you know what? <laughs> More power to Jackie that she was like still into him because I'm just saying that outfit could have ruined a lot of people's opinion. <sighs> You're ridiculous, <laughs> but I love it. <laughs> I want you to show Nathan. <laughs> the shit you were wearing this afternoon. I will gladly. I hope it, I hope it's exactly what I imagined. <laughs> <laughs> These up. binoculars are like little kid binoculars. They're like the size of my fist. That's actually how I pictured it. I mean, I did <laughs> a small hat. Yeah. 
And like just this. And there is know. a like a little sheriff star. <laughs> and the binoculars are green camo. He's just listening to hip hop, just sitting cross legged in his chair, wearing this. Not prompted. <laughs> just wearing this, just writing his notes. I was writing notes for the episode, okay? <laughs> I was feeling good, man. What's your number one? Beautiful. <laughs> I'm sorry, Max Cherry. I love you. Just work on the outfit, man. That's all I'm saying, okay? All right. We ready for number ones? Mm-hmm. Ready or not, here we come. Uh, my number one is Pulp Fiction. And I think we've talked a good amount about Pulp Fiction in this episode. I know I have personally said a lot about it. Um, it's my first introduction to Quentin, as we've talked about earlier. It's a movie that I watched a couple weeks ago that holds up as well the 10th time as the first time. Uh, I think everyone in the film is excellent. I think his direction is excellent. I think the way that he constructs his scenes and um, it's the first movie I personally ever can remember that um, a director um, messed with time and how, uh, you know, one scene does not just lead directly into the next. Um, We see somebody like Travolta's character die in the middle of film only to reappear at the end. That was revolutionary, I think, at the time for someone especially who just, you know, watches American film. Um, This was such an important film, and I think it holds so well, even now. And it's a movie I do not know how I would be as a person or a film watcher without having experienced Pulp Fiction. Yes. But how does this compare to Forrest Gump for you? (laughs) Oh, God. This discussion. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I tell you this, uh, Forrest Gump's best picture winner. Yeah. It was the best picture winner. Lion King came I can't talk too. right now, the yeah. best picture winner. Can I tell a quick side story that's terribly offensive? And if this needs to be cut out, um, this is from one of my professors at in film studies there. Uh, I might know them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can cut that name out if need be. But uh, in film uh, school, he told us once, um, he, he despised Forrest Gump, which I think it's a... Um, minor film myself but uh, he once said of Forrest Gump the reason he despises Forrest Gump is because Forrest Gump gives uh, uh, disabled people a belief that they can achieve anything in life what? <laughs> he did say that I was in the class <laughs> I'm <Yes>. but <laughs> <laughs> that's insane I mean whoa you say that out loud he did yep Oof. That was a real comment from a film professor. That I'm just, I, I, I would more or less just say that it's one of the more. It's I mean, I, like I know, but I mentioned Lion King and Pulp, we talked about sure. Pulp Fiction. It's just one of the. I think it's lesser film than the other two. Yeah, as easy as that. Correct. I, I would say. Li- I mean, if we're really talking about like popularity contest, Lion King should probably won that year. Like Good we're talking film. about just a film that like everybody knows. I mean, obviously, Pulp Fiction is in that. So for me, two. it's got to be Pulp Fiction. Well, sure, yeah. Um, I think Pulp Fiction is... So you have this film movement that starts, what, in 89 with Sex, Lies, and videos tape, sure. Videotapes? We get the Sorry, independent part. film movement. Um, yeah. I think Pulp Fiction is, like... That's the crescendo, like, the apex of that movement. Mm-hmm. 
I think it's the hey Hollywood, we're here. Like this is this is what you can do with films. And for me, like that's why I think like Pulp Fiction should have won. I think the other big contender that year was what Shawshank. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. but it was not big then. Yeah, right. it, not until our dad saw it on TNT many years <laughs> after. God bless TNT and TBS. Right. Forever. <laughs> so that, yeah. That, so Pulp Fiction, your number one too. Uh, Pulp Fiction's my number two. Go ahead and talk about it. Um. Oh yeah, you said your number one was. Yeah. Right. Um. So Pulp Fiction, like I said, I think it's his most important film. Um. The way he tells the story, non-linear, it's, uh, it, it is kind of a shock to the way that, uh, you know, especially Americans experience films, especially at the time, uh, the performances, you know, what you said about Jules, you know, you know, your sure, sure. wonderful take on that. Uh, you know, he's a wonderful character, you know, who finds faith through like extraordinary circumstances. This miraculous event that happens, right? Yeah, and I I think it's interesting that, like, it's like he resurrects all these careers, and, like, Pulp Fiction's really, like, the big one for that, because Travolta becomes, like, a Mm -hmm, superstar mm -hmm. again in the 90s, and he's not even nearly the best part of that movie. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I would say, like, Bruce Willis is even more interesting than he is in that film. Sure, sure. (laughs) Which... And, like, Bruce Willis is, like, a star at that point, and he chooses to do a little film at that point, you know, yep. that juncture. Yep. And, um, yeah, you know, we... So many good performances. Ving Rhymes. Rhymes. Yeah. Un- unbelievable. Well, movie. and also, Part I think... Me. Yeah. Yeah, the original Kingpin, right? Yep, that's right. Well, not really. Jonathan Reese davies played him in an Incredible Hulk TV movie. <laughs> Trial of the Incredible Hulk. Yeah, he... He plays a lot of short and big characters. <laughs> well done. Yeah. Um, but, uh, man, what was I thinking? Yeah, so Pulp Fiction. The soundtrack also, um, you know, the, the, the way he uses music in Reservoir Dogs is quite, you know, extraordinary and stuff, but uh, the soundtrack for Pulp Fiction was, like, that was, like, a top, like, 40, like, hits, like, a chart thing. Like, everybody owned that soundtrack at the time. Yep. You know, like, everybody know like, the... Bum, 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 bum. Mm-hmm. Like yep. the intro song. Like everybody knows that. Oh. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's just a fantastic movie. And I I think it still holds up. And everything that's been said about it, I agree with. Very good. <laughs> nice. You're all wonderful. Excellent. Nathan, well, I guess that leads us to you. Your number one pick. My number one pick is his first movie, Reservoir Dogs. Very nice. uh, Reservoir Dogs is my favorite movie of his. I, I've already sp- spoke a little bit about uh, this film on why I like it. Uh, just the fact that it's kind of in one location, too. Like uh, I know I've, this is a theme that's come up with the stuff that I really, really like. Um, it's It also is one of the first movies that built up to this one thing that doesn't show you the thing. Obviously, I think that's like a throwback to like the noir films of the, of the, the 40s and 50s. Is you know it was more of a, a talky than it was mm-hmm. showing an action uh, sequence, and I think that was a, a nice throwback to kind of the modern style we'll see we see in the early and mid nineties. Sure, we, sure. We see something where it builds up to this this giant heist, but it doesn't show you the heist. Absolutely, yeah. And and I think that's really interesting uh, approach to it, and you just see the aftermath, and then obviously he would play 
with time in Pulp Fiction right. immediately after and figuring out uh, a lot more um, fantastical ways of, of just adjusting things. And I think Reservoir Dogs is just one of those violent... It's just one of those films that really also just speaks on what Tarantino would become. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's just like, obviously, I, I just like that debut feature of, of something of... Uh, you got this person who has uh, the film knowledge to to make an homage to this this genre um uh, multiple genres you have um this person who is showing you violence as well um but that violence is meaningful Mm -hmm. in in the what he's portraying there's a lot of things that are not shown in the film that being you know the air ear scene to some extent and then also um the heist itself sure um and you also got a lot of really fantastic performances from Harvey Keitel to Steve Buscemi to a lot of just, you know, Tim Roth, Tim Roth, and just all these, these, these yeah. men in this particular role, um, you know, with pseudonyms that are really yeah. memorable too. Uh, I just, I don't know. I think it's a really fantastic debut and I think it would kind of solidify Tarantino. Maybe, maybe in Pulp Fiction, he would be more solidified as mm-hmm. like this mainstay, but I think it is Probably one of the best debuts ever, ever done. Yeah. So speaking on that, like, can you guys think of a better debut? It's. I'm sure there are some that we could say are maybe as good, but like, especially you think about the time period. I can't name one that's like. As I mean, up like, there with with best board like things that you might consider would be like a George Miller with a Mad Max. Or uh, Romero with Night of the Living Dead. Right. But, sure. like, the fact that Reservoir Dogs is up there with, like, it's these in, classic films. It's in the conversation, absolutely. You know, another thing I think about with Reservoir Dogs is, and this goes along with Pulp Fiction, is um, kind of, we think of those films as being violent. Uh, we think about the ear-cutting-off scene. Mm-hmm. We also think of Pulp Fiction about the... Uh, scene where uh, help me out here um, the guy gets his head blown, blown off, off in the back of the uh, car uh, Travolta's character he shoots him I, I can't remember the character's name at the time that gets his head shot yeah. off I'm sorry but um, we, we think of those um, both of those depictions of violence as being rather graphic and looking back at them now I mean they're both scenes that um don't quite show as much as he would later in his career, but right. leave a lot to the imagination. And I, I think that is quite interesting. And relative, uh, what am I trying to say here? Uh, relative to the time period. Relative to the it. time period and, and um, important to Tarantino's career as, as a visualist and stylist. And I, I don't think we, looking back at watching those films, I don't know if everyone thinks about that when watching those movies is, you know, uh, a lot of that violence is left to the imagination of the viewer. Well, I think Reservoir Dogs, like, like you were saying, like, the fact that it's in one spot, Mm -hmm. you know, you get, like, these sequences, you know, like the diner scene and the scene and mob bosses, you know... uh, office and stuff in a car and mm-hmm. yeah but the fact that like it could be theater yeah like you could do it sure, on sure. a stage yeah and it would be just as effective and i i think like it just showcases 
you know, his storytelling ability and his ability to write and flesh out characters and his knack for dialogue, engaging dialogue that just, it hooks you Mm -hmm. just because it has its own sound, its own rhythm. Yep. And he has that style from the get-go. It's not something that he develops. Like, Reservoir Dogs, right out the go, it's like, this is a Tarantino film. Absolutely. And you don't yeah. get that with all these great filmmakers. You yeah. know, a lot of them, yep. you know, uh, like a, a Coppola, like he's working on Corman horror flicks, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, like all these guys, like they're finding their way and Tarantino yeah. right out the gate is like, nope, this is my style. From the and, beginning. and I think yep. that um, the way that he speaks, you know, in cinema, like the, the language of cinema that doesn't really change film to film. You know, he has dynamic shots. It's not like a static thing, like a, like, you know, Linklater's early work or Mm -hmm. Kevin Smith's early work. Um, You know, he's always moving. He's always referencing, you know, these great films, you know, from the sixties and seventies. And it, it, it's really like a fully complete, you know, film as far as, far as like an auteur goes. Absolutely. Well, I know there's a lot of word salad. I don't know if nah, right. that think, made sense. I think it's well said. There's a cadence to that. There, for <laughs> sure. There's a cadence to that. Like his dialogue, you know, in Reservoir Dogs, I, to me, like, one of the standout uh, scenes in that film is going back and seeing the backstory of Tim Roth's character. Mm. Um, oh, that scene and, in the bathroom with the cops. Exactly. That scene with the cops is excellent. Um, again, as we talked about earlier... You know all the all the tension building scenes. Um, that one is one of the best. And while not all of his scenes lead to violence, um, those tension building scenes um, lead you to some sort of conclusion that leaves you in suspense the whole time. Does his American accent ever bother you guys? It doesn't bother me. <laughs> I never think of it. What about you, Nathan? Doesn't really phase me at all. We. Uh, I. Th- I think I know where you're. I also, as you, Stacy, listen to the Rewatchables podcast from time to time, and a couple yeah, of they're guys ragging on that. kind of mentioned his uh, Tim Roth's accent. In I that never film. thought about it until it was brought up to a- me. As they bring it up, right. I, I I do think that like he is very British. He does say some things, maybe a bit odd, but There's, it's I mean, never so, yeah taken me away from the film. I'll put it that way. I, uh, I also kind of. I mean, obviously, I don't. We've talked a little bit when we watched this movie. I feel like because of the debut nature and the budget nature, and I mean, obviously, you know, Miramax at the time mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. was kind of more of like that indie kind of low budget side of things sure. during that time period. And so I, I, I don't know. I feel like I, I kind of will wave stuff like that to the side, being saying like, well, that's just a part of process of mm-hmm. how this film was made and yeah. how much money was involved with it and like who he had available at the time and like where they eventually would end up and yeah like, we know a lot more history uh you know because we're really far removed from 1992 right yep and mm-hmm. so we weren't we weren't really around when it was made right and so i'm gonna be okay with him roth doing that yeah yeah for sure. And one more thing I want to mention on his part as we talk about the bathroom scene. Another part, just his whole backstory also fascinates me in that film, like as as we see him preparing with the other cop to 
um, what kind of character he's going to play as he goes undercover. And just some of those lines of dialogue um, just really stand out to me and always have um, from that film. Um, you know, just, I don't know. I, I think it's really well done. Uh, and what can I say? It's, it's a brilliant choice. It's a brilliant movie. And uh, also, uh, from what I've heard, uh, let's give a shout out to Harvey Keitel. For supposedly helping out um, the movie, well, yeah, getting yeah, that movie seeing, made a lot for seeing Quentin. the script and you know getting that movie produced, yeah, for sure, great stuff. So just from listening to everything, like it seems like there's not a wrong choice mm. for if you want to power rank Tarantino films. Yeah, you know it. Every film that he makes, and it maybe it's like when you get into it, or you know when you watch the thing, mm-hmm. like who you're with or, you know, how you watched it and stuff. But there's not really a bad choice for his top films. No, for sure. I, I feel like he hasn't made a bad movie. No, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. I think the only film, and again, this, I don't think this is a bad movie as we've talked about earlier. The only film that I think kind of got any kind of type of shortcoming in our conversation, maybe was death proof just because none of us have really, Revisited it. You know, if you go back and read reviews, people shit on Jackie Brown. Yeah, that's 100% right. Which yeah. is insane. Yeah. Um, God bless Roger Ebert. He knew they are. all along. <laughs> there you know. go. It is he insane. Because, again, I think we're all in agreement. That's a very good film. Uh, this has been a lot of fun, guys. Um, yeah. I've, I've loved this conversation. Nathan, is awesome to have you on yeah, this episode. So yeah. Um, before we go, any closing thoughts for everybody? Tell us what kind of some of your projects and where we can find you online. Yeah, um, so I'm on YouTube, and if you just type in Nathan Jones, make sure you put movie review or movie movie reviewer because you're going to get the Australian actor the same name. If you've seen Troy or Mad Max, Fury Road, you know who Nathan Jones is. He's that giant bald man who also used to do a stint in WWE. He was a wrestler. Uh, yes. Back in the day, uh, a former armed robber, too. Uh, I'm not that man. <laughs> I'm not that guy. Uh, <laughs> no robbery here. Yes. But if you want, I'm on YouTube, uh, Nathan Jones. Like I said, movie review or movie reviewer. That's kind of the best way to find me. And You do a lot of uh, Criterion-related uh, things as yeah. well. Recently, um, I've been doing a lot of um, like Barnes Noble sales stuff. Sure. Talking about, I have a, a segment that uh, Nolan's been on. He uh, and I did a, I have a selection series, which is practically like a revision of the Criterion Closet pick mm-hmm. uh, from directors and actors and yep. artists that uh, come in to my house and just we just, we select a few Criterions and then we talk a little bit at length. It was a lot of fun. I thank you for letting me join you because we had a good time doing that. And I hope we can do it again sometime. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. And, the thing and again, is, I hope we can have you on this podcast again. Yeah, sometime. absolutely. Yeah, and well, actually, I was going to say, in a month, I leave for China sure. for about four months. So uh, <clears throat> the time is of the essence. So yes. I, I'm not going to be producing content um, for four months. Because uh, YouTube is not uh, in China. Well, it is if I really wanted to, but I, I don't really care to. Sure. So my you know so I'll I'll have some archival footage from the past you know, on my channel, but I have lots of different things on there. From I have my own podcast that I do with my roommate Joey. It's a little bit more um, less 
um, frequent uh, because we just time is you know just a fickle bitch. You know? As it is for me. Yeah. No doubt. Um, but other things like that, yeah. And so that's probably the best way to find me. Um, I have a Facebook and an Instagram uh, page, but uh, that can be also found through YouTube. All right. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this has been a pleasure and a lot of fun. Um, as for me, you can find me at uh, Chuck Madden Jr. on Letterboxd. You can find us on Twitter at Cinema Parlor. Uh, thank you so much for our editor and producer, Melanie, you can find her at Plastic Werewolf on Twitter. And Stacy. Glover 84 on uh, the letterbox. I, I'm on Twitter, but I don't check it. That's fair. Where's the genesis of Chuck Madden? That is a long story that um, it's basically an alias for myself. I think it was a mix. Well, no shit. Of, uh, <laughs> a, Your name's not Chuck? Yeah, no, it's a mix of John Madden, the football coach, and Charles Bronson, the action star, and uh, the junior, I can't remember where that came from, but... Maybe the love child? It's been many years ago, but it was a good story at one point towards it. You had an origin story. I did have an origin story. Chuck Madden Jr., that's me. I, you know, it's... It's very original. What can I say? You know, uh, no one else has it. So uh, no, just you and uh, Rick James Ghost. Rick, yeah. You, if you want to email me personally, you can email me at rickjamesghost at hotmail I will gra- gladly uh, respond to anyone who. How quickly did you get that email after he died? Within days, I think maybe like. You know what's funny? This is a tangent, by the way. Um, so if this gets cut out, uh, so be it. Uh, I was, I believe, 18 or 19 at the time that Rick James passed away. And I was, it was after, you know, I had obviously seen the Dave Chappelle uh, Rick yeah, James episode. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was in Alaska on a vacation and I was at the age of 18 or 19 when I learned of Rick James' death, and I was devastated. And so at that time, I also made my Hotmail account. And that's when I made the the Hotmail of Rick James Ghost at Hotmail.com. Devastated. Very much. You got an email? That's my email. Oh, I thought you, I was, I thought you were going to say somebody emailed you about this. No, I, I made that up on my own. I wish someone would email me about that subject or... Anything in general. Do people email you often at Rick James Ghost? Not very. I mean, I get a lot of spam of, you <laughs> know, but... <laughs> if anyone wants to talk to me, though, I, I'm here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Your corporeal self is here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we're all getting a little loopy. All right, let's end this thing because things are going to get weird. So, uh, I'm Nolan Tuck, that's Stacey Glover, Nathan Jones, this has been fun, and uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. I was the third brother of five, doing whatever I had to do to survive. I'm not saying what I did was alright Trying to break out of the ghetto was a day-to-day fight 
Being down so long, getting up to the cost of mine. But I knew there was a better way of life, and I was just trying to find. You don't know what you do until you put under pressure. Cross 110th Street is a hell of a tester. Across 110th Street, pimps trying to catch a woman that's weak. Across 110th Street, pushers won't let the junkie go free. Woman trying to catch a trick on the street. 